Greetings and bienvenue, Midnight Crew. Tonight's broadcast will be slightly different from others. As many of you have been made aware of from the comment section, a member of our community has passed away. Ryan or Witch Doctor or simply Doc on the Discord. Ryan had been a member of this community since nearly the beginning. For the last few months he has commented on every video. He had always stayed positive. He gave updates on his life and was there on the Discord whenever anyone needed someone to talk to. He is survived by his wife and his son. There will be links in the description if you wish to donate to her. So, tonight's video is dedicated to him. I present to all of you. Stories from his home state of Texas. Well, I was born and grew up in a house in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. As far as I've ever been able to find out, it was built sometime in the 60s or 70s. It was also a really weird house, and by that I mean the windows were all very weird sizes and none of them matched. There was this funky overhang that went down on either side in an egg shape beyond the roof. The master bedroom was upstairs so it was kind of backward. The living room had this insanely high ceiling, and the stairs had a cupboard. There was a room with an entire wall that was a massive sliding glass door that we called the playroom, and there were bizarre nooks and crannies that seemed to lead nowhere. For example, in one of the two walk-in closets in my sister's room, on one side was a tiny, two-by-two-foot door with a narrow crawl space that lead precisely nowhere. Since I lived in this house for 12 years, there's a lot to tell. My stupid parents were too stubborn to nope the fuck out of there, so we just stuck around to be haunted as fuck all those years. First off, that crawl space in the closet? It had weird boxes and items left over from the previous owner. Just old crap. I don't even remember what any of it was. My sister crawled into the tiny space to see what was in there once. She came out screaming at the top of her lungs, and to this day has never told anyone what happened there. All of us kids heard our names whispered right up against our ears at night. There were strange lights that would appear under the doors, float through the house, or float just outside the windows at night. You could hear footsteps walking up and down the stairs and through the house at random. Voices would whisper indeterminate nonsense audible to the naked ear at random times. Shit was fucking terrifying. My parents went full on denial mode, but my mom was scared as fuck. My mom did eventually admit she heard the voices too, but then went back into full on denial mode. She took sleeping pills every night to get to sleep, and had the worst possible thing she could have, a white noise generator. I'd walk in there as a little kid after having terrifying nightmares or whatever, and at times, whispers and growls would come out of the white noise machine. Needless to say I never went into her room again at night. I used to wander the house in the middle of the night for no apparent reason. I saw shadow figures all the time, as did my sisters. I could never sleep at night. When I did sleep, I thrashed. I used to do these creepy rhythmic movements or whisper things in my sleep, which I'd be told about when I woke up. I'd always rock, swing an arm or leg back and forth like a pendulum, rhythmically shake my head side to side in a no motion, 
and frequently could be heard whispering, No, 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 with each beat, by the way I'm fine, and I don't really have any memory of anything happening to me in particular, other than recurring nightmares and night terrors as a kid. But they didn't really make a lot of sense, so I don't know. My dad had a ham radio for a while. Not long after he got it, it would turn itself on and start shrieking, whispering, squelching or growling in the middle of the night. Being the stoic MOFO he was, he just unplugged it and said nothing about it. Then it kept doing it. While unplugged, he just eventually quietly moved it to the garage and, again, said nothing about it. It could still be heard making the occasional faint noise from the fucking garage. I was often chased and attacked, grabbed, pushed over, scratched, bruised. This thing followed me around. I was out swimming with my sisters and several times, something invisible yanked me by the left heel, always that heel for some reason, into the water trying to drown me. I'd come up screaming. It did it to my sisters too. Several times while we were playing in the backyard, we found weird shit back there. There were buried items littering the yard, an old plastic watering can, a couple of black garbage bags, weird shreds of blue tarp, and a few broken metal items under the shed. This is going to sound crazy, but a few times we found random bones buried in the dirt that we never told anyone about because we were stupid kids. Looking back, the bones I remember finding appeared to be some kind of ribs. I'm hoping someone was just eating pork ribs and tossed them out at random or something, in redneck Texan fashion. But it definitely bugs me. My mom would wait until my dad left for work and like, call over pastors and church deacons and shit, trying to get someone, anyone to exorcise that fucking house. Nothing worked, and I mean nothing. She would go to churches we weren't members of, just sort of look them up and call up the pastors, basically begging anyone to come help us. I don't think she ever admitted to my dad that she'd been calling these pastors over. I think my dad was the main force behind this in spoken, you saw nothing, rule we had going on. In the end, after my dad passed away of a heart attack in the middle of the night one night, my mom decided to move us to a new house. Thank fuck. We had a really hard time selling the house. More than once, potential buyers stopped right at the doorstep, took one look inside, and said, I feel weird about this place. Then they'd GTFO immediately and never called the realtor again. The realtor was a family friend, so she told us all this. She was a very sweet, naive Christian lady who didn't believe in demons or anything, but after that, she admitted she thought maybe the house was possessed. There are rumors that people who've lived in the house since then have been fucked up families. But that's about all I know. I would not live in that house again if you paid me a million dollars a month for it. Spooky Texas threat. No El Paso every time. If you want to feel spooky vibes, drive down Ascension Boulevard at night. No abandoned houses or anything. Just pure desert, but there's a chance you can see something weird. There's a story. You can find Texas ghost legends for each city from a site called Shadowlands, of a headless monk that rides a donkey who supposedly shows up down that road, but that same legend covers most of the southwest. 
my mom swears after one night coming home from a friend's house in Horizon City that she saw a regular old man walking and even considered to give him a ride for a second. It was late and in the middle of winter, but when she passed him and looked in her rearview mirror, he wasn't there. My dad also used to tell me some pretty creepy stories from when he lived in the projects in the lower valley as a kid, don't remember any really well cause it's been a while, but can confirm that side of town is fucked. I lived there for a year right by some canals and saw shadow people for the first time there, saw a weird as fuck trick in my bathroom mirror, was just checking out my pupils when a bright ring of gold slash blue appeared around it out of nowhere, scared the fuck out of me and hasn't happened since, had someone slash thing scream, tonight, in my right ear when I was trying to sleep, and would hear knocking almost every single night from 12-ish to 3am, in sets of 3. This was in 2012, so the idea wasn't born from the conjuring and was actually more annoying than spooky after a while. I think that area had some kind of opening for demons or something cause three old men were found right next to our place throughout that year all in the same exact area. It was like someone just stuffed them into the empty gutter and left. The cops never came around and questioned us either, that was the weirdest part. Not even a, did you hear slash see anything suspicious? What the fuck? Cash Landrum Incident, 1980. One of the very few UFO cases to result in civil court proceedings. On the evening of December 29th, Betty Cash, Vicky Landrum and Colby Landrum, Vicky's grandson, were driving home to Dayton, Texas after dining out. At about 9 p.m., while driving on an isolated road in dense woods, the witnesses said they observed a light above some trees, but thinking it was an airplane approaching Houston Intercontinental Airport, about 35 miles away, they gave it little notice. A few minutes later on the winding road, the witnesses saw what they believed to be the same light as before, but much closer and very bright. The light, they claimed, came from a huge diamond-shaped object, which hovered at about treetop level. The object's base was expelling flame and emitting significant heat. Cash stopped the car, though Vicky Landrum, a born-again Christian, believed she was witnessing the second coming of Christ, telling her grandson that Jesus would not hurt them. The two women went outside to investigate the object, but got back in the car due to the Landrum's grandson becoming frantic. The witnesses said the heat was strong enough to make the car's metal body painful to the touch. Cash said she had to use her coat to protect her hand from being burned when she finally re-entered the car. When she touched the car's dashboard, Landrum's hand pressed into the softened vinyl, leaving an imprint that was evident weeks later. Investigators later cited this handprint as proof of the witness's account. At some point, the object rose up into the sky, and the witnesses claimed black helicopters approached and surrounded it. After the UFO and helicopters left, Cash took the Landrums home, then retired for the evening. That night, they all experienced similar symptoms, though Cash to a greater degree. All suffered from nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, generalized weakness, a burning sensation in their eyes, and feeling as though they'd suffered sunburns. 
However, Cash eventually had to be hospitalized after her condition deteriorated such that patches of her hair and skin started to fall away. The Landrums also sought medical attention, though their conditions were less severe. A radiologist who examined the witness's medical records for Mutual UFO Network wrote, We have strong evidence that these patients have suffered secondary damage to ionizing radiation. It is also possible that there was an infrared or ultraviolet component as well. However, some contend that, although the symptoms were similar to those caused by ionizing radiation, the rapidity of onset was only consistent with a massive dose that would have meant certain death in a few days. Since all of the victims lived for years after the incident, some suggest the cause of the symptoms was some kind of chemical contamination, presumably by an aerosol. Vicki Landrum telephoned a number of U.S. government agencies and officials about the encounter, and eventually, MUFON began research on the case. Due to the helicopter's presence, identified as Chinooks, the witnesses presumed that at least one branch of the United States Armed Forces had witnessed the object. In 1982, Lieutenant Colonel George Saran of the Department of the Army Inspector General began the only thorough formal governmental investigation into the supposed UFO encounter, but could find no evidence that the helicopters the witnesses claimed to have seen belonged to the U.S. Armed Forces. Eventually, Cash and Landrum contacted their U.S. Senators, who suggested that the witnesses file a complaint with the Judge Advocate Claims Office at Bergstrom Air Force Base. With an attorney taking on the case pro bono, the case wound its way through the U.S. courts for several years. Cash and Landrum sued the U.S. government for $20 million. On August 21, 1986, a U.S. District Court judge dismissed their case. The ghost face of University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. The likeness of a human face, specifically, the likeness of a William A. Bigfoot Wallace, that first appeared on the outer fourth-story wall of Building Number 71, Ewing Hall, of the University of Texas Medical Branch campus in the 1980s, shortly after the construction of the building. After the appearance of the face, the university had the wall in question sandblasted, however, soon after, the face had appeared once more, this time on the third floor. The image was sandblasted again, only for it to reappear on the second floor, after which the university ceased its efforts to remove it. The face is purported to have manifested as a result of a land dispute, in which said Bigfoot Wallace was entitled to a grant of land which the state of Texas refused to yield, with the face only appearing once the state of Texas erected a building on the parcel of land claimed by the then-dead claimant. There also seems to be a story of some nurse who was driving trying to see the face, but her inattention at the wheel caused her to dive into the adjoining marshland and drown. X, I have a recent skinwalker encounter that I'd like to get off my chest. Now, I'm not the best writer and have spent some time pre-writing this to ensure the details are all included as well as relevant pictures. I'm going to forewarn you, it's not really that exciting, no one died and for that I'm fortunate. Be me, 24 years old. Biologist currently finishing up PhD at a top Baptist university in Central Texas. 
I've been in the state for a few years now, however I originally came from up north. I've made it more than halfway through the program and are finishing up my research projects in preparation to graduate with my PhD. My research focuses on mosquito-borne illnesses and I intend to utilize my PhD and my research interests as a ticket to direct commission as a medical entomologist for the Army. A lot of my research consists of fieldwork. This includes mosquito larva collections. As I conduct a lot of fieldwork I often find myself in remote places, including state and national parks. Over the last few years I've been collaborating with a former military medical entomologist. The reason I had this encounter was fueled by the collaboration I have with this entomologist. During our collaborative work, I've traveled to almost every state park in Central Texas. This includes Fort Parker which is handily located west of the Piney Woods region of Texas. The reason I mention this is that I've heard of other cryptid stories, including skinwalkers in East Texas and featuring Parker was a few hours from Piney Woods, where another, X, poster encountered one. I never saw anything weird up to this point, but believe what I saw was a skinwalker due to the sheer proximity to the Piney Woods and the short time it would take to get there. Now this day, I wasn't in the Piney Woods or featuring Parker however had traveled to Meridian State Park. Meridian is in central, eastern Texas, south of Dallas and considered the heart of Bosque County. It was around three hours from Fort Parker and four or five from the Piney Woods region. I was tasked with doing some mosquito larva surveys to see what species were present, and this had become a routine activity so I thought nothing of it. The park was eerily deserted for a Sunday morning with a few campsites set up and a few park rangers working. I quickly signed in at the ranger station, showed my collection credentials and was given a parking sticker, receipt for my car windshield. The weather was quite good, with a temperature around 74 and partially cloudy skies. I parked my car at one of the parking lots next to the lake, specifically next to Lakeside Campground Premium Shelter 4. I had counted no more than five cars, and from memory remember seeing a bunch of Taiwanese tourists. I applied bug spray. As a biologist I've learned a lot about mosquito-borne illness, tick-borne illness and I wouldn't be a happy camper to be on the receiving end of any pathogen. I grabbed my rucksack out of my trunk, as well as my collection gear, larval dipper, strainer, Eppendorf tubes, 50 milliliter conical tubes. Now I'm usually legally carrying when I go into state parks, this due to being from the north originally and having to deal with predators. Now I'm no commando and don't have a Chinese girlfriend SKS, but I do have a rusty 9mm Smith and Wesson M and PM 2.0. However on this day, I chose not to bring it because of the humidity being pretty bad. My original plan was to hike the Bosque Trail and cross over onto the Shinnery Ridge Trail sampling any streams I passed. I started out on the Civilian Conservation Corps Bridge, 6, and made my way north on the Bosque Trail. It was pretty amazing at first, the forest was alive with insect activity, bird calls and a slight breeze which rustled the trees. The Bosque Trail at this point crosses over into the smaller Little Forest Junior Trail which is about 0.8 miles long, 
I stopped at a wildflower field as it was the first time I visited the park and I wanted to see some of the sights. The field was mostly dead, the wildflowers trampled, withered and covered in weeds. I reluctantly continued along the trail and saw maybe one other person the quarter mile I was on the junior trail. He asked what I was doing and I briefly explained why I was carrying all the gear. We parted ways and I eventually made it back on the Bosque Trail. After a while I stopped at Bee Ledge which is a rock formation overlooking Lake Meridian. It was an amazing spot so I decided to take a picture there which I could use for Facebook or whatever. Now as I left the ledge the weird things started to happen and they continued to intensify as I went down the trail. A quarter mile from the bee ledge I started to encounter large objects blocking the trail path. Several logs seemed to have been dragged onto the trail. Additionally, fallen trees were spread out along the next quarter mile stretch. Crossing over them was quite difficult and there were quite a lot of them. This continued for several hundred feet until the trail steeply went up the side of the mountain. It seems that at some point the rangers had carved out stone stairs into the rock face, however they were deteriorated and at this point hard to traverse. The trail had a long railing made from what looked to be an outdoor power cord, however due to county vit I didn't use it. The disrepair continued to intensify as I made my way deeper into the trail. At the start the trail markers were shiny metallic rectangles with a blue indicator nailed to trees. However, they soon transitioned into just blue spray paint on the bark. I constantly kept getting lost on the trail, now I'm not a person who gets lost easily. I've had a lot of hiking experience and consistently went on collections in various state parks. Upon reaching the first stream I crouched to unpack my ruck and started to collect larvae using the dipper. The water wasn't that deep, it wasn't flowing and had become stagnant with a deep brownish color. Using my larval dipper I collected water and strained it for mosquito larvae. I made several collections and ultimately found several species including Culex pipiens quinquefasciatus, a very common southern species. After taking my samples I carefully packed my rucksack to ensure the samples wouldn't be disturbed during transit. From experience if it's too shaky, they won't be able to float at the water's surface and breath and ultimately die. It is much easier to identify an adult mosquito versus a larva and I don't want to have to identify 100 dead larvae. As I continued to venture forth, the trail started to get worse and worse. It reached a point where I became pissed off and thought to myself, why the heck does it look this way etc, what are the rangers doing etc. I started to take GPS tagged pictures, which I could pass off to the rangers for trail repair operations. At this point, I doubted that any common person let alone a weekend hiker would be able to successfully navigate this trail, and thought it posed a significant safety risk. Continuing onward down the trail I reached a dense area of woods. It seems that out of nowhere, the trail enters a thick brush and stays in it for quite a while. The thick brush had minimal undergrowth, but darkened the trail due to the thick canopy created by the overlapping trees. Now I am a religious person, thinking back, 
I should have realized that darkness ultimately relates to evil and should have been forewarned of continuing. Entering the dense woods seems to have transformed everything around me, not physically but in a sense where it felt different. The bird calls disappeared, the insects were silent and the trees were not rustling anymore. Slightly alarmed I continued onward, as I was approximately an eight of the way through the Bosque Trail and had several more streams needed to be collected which could take several hours, it was 1 p.m. at this point. After a while I felt like I was being watched, and I started to get very anxious. Now I'm not a perfect person but I had a really strong feeling I was being watched. I usually don't get feelings like this so when I experience them it's usually wise to trust them. I scanned the area and didn't see anything so I continued onward. There was still no noise, so I increased my pace so that I could get out of this creepy area quickly. I soon reached a second stream and decided to sample it. Like the first, the water was dark and stagnant. I unpacked my gear and quickly worked to collect samples. I found a few varied insect larvae, including several mosquito larvae and several dragonfly larvae. I removed the dragonfly larvae as they kill mosquito larvae and if I had left them all the mosquitoes would have been dead before I returned to campus. As I was packing up, I started to smell a stagnant copper smell. Now it is hard to explain, but the best explanation is a mixture of blood, roadkill and death. I'm having a difficult time writing this next statement, but I'll give it my best. As a man of science, I've learned a lot about the biology of living creatures. I've been able to extract mosquito blood meals and determine the blood meal host species using mitochondrial DNA. I've genetically edited and made transgenic mosquitoes with edited receptors. I believe in a rational explanation for everything as I've experienced a structured order to nature. At first I freaked out a little bit internally, but had a strong belief that some armadillo decided to die near the trail and his decomposing corpse was responsible for the smell. Now the trail was still in a thick part of brush, so not seeing a corpse wasn't too alarming. I continued down the trail heading toward the northern bend in the Bosque Trail, which can be seen on the trail map. Upon reaching the northern bend I stopped for a few seconds. I still felt like I was being followed, but couldn't smell the stagnant copper anymore, so I partially relaxed, looked at the map, then continued onward, southwestern down the trail. After a short while the smell returned, I was far enough from the stream that it would be very unlikely that it wafted this far. This startled and concerned me as it isn't normal for so many corpses to be near trails and I've never experienced something like this before. I reached a small bridge and the thick forest started to clear out into where I could see for a short distance between the trees. I stopped for a minute to look at the map and my phone as the trail had sorta of dissipated. The bridge had a small stream running underneath it but I reluctantly still felt awkward so I didn't sample it. While looking for where the trail continued toward, I found a large black object standing in my peripheral vision more or so 300 feet meters away. My eyes adjusted to it and the image focused into what looked like a person standing, six feet tall. However, the face was wrong and it was covered in fur, not clothing. I looked away for a second and looked back and the object disappeared. 
I started to internally freak out, but soon found where the trail started back up and the object was standing in the opposite direction when I saw it. I noped.jpg down the trail, and ensured I kept my eyes scanning near where I saw the object. My biggest concern at this point was something was following me, possibly a large animal and I would rather not make the 6 o'clock news. While continuing down the trail the smell still lingered, and I saw it again this time around 300 feet away again. This time I noticed that it was some sort of animal, I assumed a deer was standing on its back feet. I stopped to observe it and noticed it was walking on two feet, very awkwardly and the fur seemed to have large missing spots. I knew it wasn't human as humans don't walk that way, nor if injured walk that way. It had a very primal animalistic walk. I blinked and at some point it disappeared. I got really spooked and almost started sprinting down the trail. I covered a mile of harsh terrain in about five minutes. I made it to a clearing where I could see across the lake and toward where I had parked. At this point I could hear something from the direction I came in. It seemed to be slowly getting louder. Bill where go, Bill go you. My mind pieced together that it was saying, Bill where'd you go? I have no clue who Bill is, and the voice didn't sound human. It's as if an animal's voice box was being forced to pronounce human words. It sounded raspy and primal. This absolutely scared the ever-living shit out of me. I kept a steady pace down the trail. I kept scanning my surroundings and cursing at myself for not bringing my pistol. The smell intensified, and I'm pretty sure it was following me closely. I did due diligence to ensure I wasn't being outmaneuvered or flanked. Whatever it was, it was hunting me and I had around 70 pounds of gear on me and was ultimately a slow-moving target. I eventually made it to the eastern campsites marked with a picnic bench on the map and felt a sigh of relief. I'm not sure if these things hunt in open terrain, but I would have a good view of it if it left the tree line. To my surprise there was an older middle-aged lady camped out there. She had a dog with her, and the dog was going absolutely nuts barking. At first I thought I spooked the dog, but after looking at it for a while, it was barking at something in the tree line, not me. After a while it whimpered and ran away from the tree line and toward the lady's tent and she called his name. Let's say Fido because I can't remember it. I socially distanced a hello wave and continued to awkwardly run down the trail carrying my gear. It was quite peaceful and quiet for a short distance down the trail and eventually I reached a road. I felt guilty about how that lady was probably going to get murdered by whatever that was, and felt fortunate I escaped. About 30 minutes later I stumbled out on a forest service road. The trail seemed to wind onto the road and just abruptly end. Now from my recollection this is the road on the southwestern corner of the map, which parallels the trail. The smell started to come back and I started to panic again. I heard, where'd Fido, which really freaked me out because whatever was saying that was mirroring the lady. Now the trail didn't have a good indicator of where it started back up. I was freaking out as the noise was increasing. I started to head I presume north on the road, and eventually figured out it was the wrong way as it didn't follow the contour of the road on the map. 
I double time it back and see a park ranger truck driving down the road toward me. I flagged him down and asked him where the Bosque trail started back up. To my surprise the trail actually backs onto the road, where you have to walk down the road following spray painted dots, and eventually it goes back into the woods. I'm sure the ranger knew what was up because he was very brief and told me to stay on the trails. I asked him if there were any predators in the woods which I should worry about. His eyes got real big and he told me to stay on the trails, not to deviate and to probably call it a day. He took off speeding down the road and I awkwardly sprinted south down the road and eventually found the trail again. The whole time, in the distance I heard, where trail back start. The fucker was mocking me and was stalking me while I talked to the ranger. I hauled my ass down the trail and eventually reached a clearing. This clearing being the southern bend of the trail where it curves off east into a straight line. This area was quite open, almost reminded me of a rice field as there were swamps on either side of the trail, and it was elevated on a grass mound 8 feet up and 10 feet wide. I continued in a sprint across the mound and reached the end of the trail where it loops to my car. When I reached the bend which led toward where I parked, I stopped and looked back. It was standing on the mound near the forest opening, 200 feet, just staring at me. It wasn't on the two legs anymore, but on all fours. The face looked honestly like the descriptions I've seen on here. It was sunken in, red dots in black eyes etc. It also seemed to be smirking. I booked it to my car threw my ruck in the trunk and literally did not stop till I reached campus. Now, I'm not sure if it's real. I had packed a good meal, lots of water and wasn't dehydrated. I'm in good mental health, or as best I can be in a PhD program. It wasn't a deer, a bear or anything that I've seen before. Since then I've not wanted to go in a woods or collect rightfully so without another person. I'm sorry that this was uneventful but I really wanted to get it off my chest. Now, most of the stuff here is fake, however this isn't. Be me, 13 years ago, 13 years old, Central Texas, camping by myself, scout requirement, leave at about 7 a.m., get to the campsite, and set up. Have a whole day ahead of me. Now, in my town a 13-year-old with a Mosin rifle in the woods alone on a normal Tuesday. Here a scurry in the underbrush. Accidentally powder rabbit.mp4. Now that I have no meat left on the rabbit, I now have to look for more animals. It's three hours of hiking earlier. It's dark by now. It's also cold. Go back to camp. Decide to not eat tonight. Camp box is splintered, tent is still fine. See a smallish animal, and take a shot at it. It stands up, and it's like 7 feet tall. It can't be human, as no one in my town is that tall, or ugly. It was eating all of my oranges, and I wanted my oranges. Mag dump as fast as I can with a Mosin. Turns out, there's a hunter shack one mile away from where I was. Hike over to it and every window is broken, the door is broken, and the sheriff is there. They think I did it. The thing I shot at watched and followed me there. 
All of my shots missed. That was the scariest night ever for me, and the only I made it out with was my Mosin. Be me and friend. Live in a tiny town of maybe 2,000 at the time. In our music phase sophomore year. Friend has a garage to jam out. Here yells coming from backyard. WTF. Sounds like a deaf person trying to speak. Gets so bad no one wants to party. Continues for weeks. Friend's dad is going crazy from it. Wakes up in the middle of night to yell back. I'm so sorry, I can't help you, he yells. My friend and I listen closely. It is saying help me. We freak out and insist on investigating. Neighbors behind the house have a cage. Cage blocked by plywood. Can't see it. Approach it and the yelling stops. Here's heavy breathing. Fuck that. Run back to the house and call the cops. Cops show up. Old Mexican couples insist they have nothing. They're witches with no electricity. Continues. Insist on cops. People move out and never hear it again. Till this day, we have no idea what the fuck was going on. Marfa Lights. I was driving up from Big Bend National Park towards Guadalupe National Park. This brought me very near Marfa, Texas. I was only car on the road. It was about 3 a.m. All of a sudden a light appears in the sky, very far in the distance. It was just a small orb upon first sight. It slowly descend until it is on the horizon directly in front of my car. At this time I was about 10 miles away from it. At this point I am nervous but I told myself it could be anything so I keep going. The light remains in the distance as I travel another 2 or 3 miles. I start thinking about turning around, but I was in the middle of nowhere, and low on gas. I didn't have enough gas to go back to the last town 50 or so miles back south. At this point, I start freaking out because the light starts growing. Then it divides into two, one above the other. Then the two lights divide left and right to create four lights. The lights appear to grow. I am heading for them still and they appear to be moving now towards me. I'd say I was about five miles away from them at this point. The four lights then further divide up, so that now I am staring at a pillar made orb lights in a 2 by 8 pattern. They appear to be getting even larger as I head to them. They then start to pulse at what I would say 10 second intervals. At this point I don't know what to do. I figure maybe it is a roadblock, military, aliens, or some kids, or some illegals trying to get me to stop so they can hijack my car. Every scary thought ran through my mind. I can't go back because not much gas left, so I just fucking gun the engine, get up to about 110 miles per hour. As I am coming up to them, the merge row by row into each other until there were only two, and then those two shrunk and faded away completely just as my car was coming up to pass where they would have been. Weirdest shit I've ever seen. So, pretty simple. Been having the worst creeping feelings of dread the last few days. 
Stuff has generally been strange. I'm back at my folks' place for a while due to the coof and shit. Had it. Fucked me up so I'm not as robust as I used to be. Posted about this area a while back in a Texas happenings thread. Folks live across from two ancestral graveyards from the original settlers to this rural region, dating back to before the founding of the Republic. Wondering what's going on around here lately, should I be concerned? Last night we had a wicked moon out, almost full, yellow as snake's blood, and the forest out here seems to be getting up to its old shit. Any light in the area gets drunk up by this dark as Dick's Texas oak. Makes the shadow swim when you look out into the dark. Was light enough to be okay last night though. Tonight however it's pitch black moons totally obscured, hasn't risen. You'd think with the new truck stop on the corner, the lights that bug the fuck out of us usually would keep this area lit, but nah. It's still ink outside. If that wasn't enough, dogs have been acting weird all day. I keep having the small one who stays next to me pop up out of dead sleep or grooming herself to glare at a corner, while the others are uncharacteristically whiny. Bringing the bigger one in tonight, she refused to leave her place next to the gate across the acreage for a while only to finally start coming and then stop dead again halfway, looking over towards our overgrown swamp of a pond. I call her some more and she finally comes, but she bolts the other way around our dog run rather than the direct path into the closed patio to the front door. I kinda brush it off, bring her in and feed her with the other animals. Though the whole time she seems nervous, she wolfs down her food, and when I remember I have to feed the outdoor elderly cats, she bolts past me as I walk out the door into the dark. I try to go and get her back, but she's back at that midpoint. She's zoned in on that damn pond again. When I try to be firm and get her to come back, Instead she bolts into the semi-shadow of a large oak on our property going damn near invisible. She's tawny fur. I should see her but nothing. It's like she vanished in mid-air. I'm kinda freaked out and while I know my eyes are shit, I keep sweeping the area, calling. Can't see or find her. Get the hairs on the back of my neck standing on end. Notice no frogs and the damn dog isn't barking. If it was our border in the back, she'd be barking her head off, or rather anyone else. Same for if it's the chickens we keep, but the chickens sleep in their roost at sundown. This dog's too much of a pussy to fuck with snakes either, though at that same twist I'm not going out there to risk a mocassine bite near the pond to get her. At this point I've come back inside, locked the doors, and taken the holy water from the pantry to bless the doorways with three shakes of the stuff. My mother and I are Catholic. We've had weird shit happen recently before, where an old camera was yeeted the fuck across the room from the sofa and into the cat box while no one was in the room. I reasoned the thing got flipped by the cats playing and hitting the dresser drawer that was on the couch that the camera was in. It was knocked over, 
but we remember it being in the center of the sofa, and I don't think the cats could produce enough force leaping on the thing to ever shoot that camera. I tried not to think too deeply about it and just chalk it up as a weird happenstance. Should I be concerned about tonight? Not mine, but it is about the same stretch of land they are talking about for skinwalkers. It was 1973. I was hitchhiking from New Brownfels to Corpus Christi on Texas 123. It was 2 to 3 in the morning and there was a fog that had settled. It was late and the first two cars did not stop, they just kept driving. I understood. It was late, but I was young and dumb and proceeded on. I came up to a bridge and began walking across it. As I did I began to hear the same thing. Pissed. I thought I was hearing things and continued walking. A few minutes later I heard it again. The bridge was long, but I knew I had heard something. I looked down the side to the bridge and was barely able to make out the floor. But there was nothing there. I continued walking and heard it again, and then again. I thought it was just somebody messing with me, perhaps a transient seeking shelter under the bridge. Then I remember thinking, how did they see me and how did they hear me from the other side of the bridge? The sound was emanating from under the bridge. How were they following me from under the bridge? The noise began to get louder as I was nearing the end of the bridge and then, I heard indistinct voices. Not one but multiple voices. I was dumb, naive, I thought I was brave and bad. So I did what any idiot would do. I began to descend under the bridge. The voices began to move away. So I started walking deeper down. I thought I began to hear laughter then it dawned on me. They were luring me down. I paused and slowly began to backtrack and then I heard, pissed once again. It was coming towards me. Pissed is closer still. A heaviness and urgency filled me as I turned to run. Pissed closer still. The fog got heavier as I began to sprint. Pissed it had to have been only yards away. My lungs were beginning to burn and I could feel my side beginning <coughs> to hurt. Light up ahead, an oncoming car my salvation on the opposite side. To this day I am not sure what he saw. He saw me running and he must have seen what was behind me. His face was in utter disbelief. He slowed down enough to get a better look and then sped away. I was defeated. My muscles began to protest and then pissed. It was already at my back. Just then a semi came out of nowhere. It was coming fast. I took my chances and started flailing my arms. He saw me and began to slow down. Whatever this thing was, the semi seemed to scare it off. I turned around still moving forward and saw nothing. There were a lot of lights on the semi and the entire area seemed to be illuminated. He opened the door and I jumped in. Before I closed the door I heard someone from the side in the brush, pissed, almost. It was guttural and angry. I looked at the driver and asked him, did you hear that? He smiled and said it must be coyotes. You alright, son? Where you headed? He asked as he put the rig in gear and slowly lumbered back onto the pavement. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw something. Something angry and big, something I won't describe. Something that should not be. Corpus, sir, thank you. You don't know what a blessing you are. I wanted to cry. I was scared, but I was alive. 
I was alive. First of all, I'm at work, so I didn't really get a chance to pre-write this, even though I know that you'll probably grow impatient waiting for a continuation. That is, of course, if you even take a liking for my story. The house in the picture is where I used to live when all of these things happened. First of all, I was maybe about 9 or 10 when all of this started. I had three stepsisters who were my dad's, and my brother who was my mom's, but not my dad's. My dad was a drug lord in the area, he eventually got arrested and my mom decided to split it up because he got a 15-year sentence. We moved out of our older home and came to this hellhole of a house. My uncle and his family had just gotten kicked out of their house, so they decided to move in with us, and my mom decided it would be easier, because that way we could split the bills and all that shat. Now back to the topic. My stepsisters were absolute assholes all the time, and had a shat ton of dashy friends. The whole mess started when they moved out of the house. My uncle's family shortly occupied my sister's room, and my grandma came to visit, so she had her own room. My mom had a serious drug problem in that time, so she was always angry and arguing with my grandma and us, which is the reason why I think our house always reeked of this nasty tense feel. The air was dense to the point where you felt like you were choking inside. Sometime after my grandma moved in, my mom started to hear noises in the kitchen. By this time, my mom slept in the living room to avoid being bothered by me, my brother or my grandma. She used to go to my room and spank me because she said I would always trash her makeup, when in reality, I was dead asleep. Sometimes she'd get mad and say me and my brother pulled on her hair, or pushed the sofa to wake her up. We never did. After some time, the noises started getting gradually louder. Really loud. She was always angry, complaining about me and my brother playing pranks on her, or arguing with my grandma about whether or not she was drugged. In a nutshell, before my brother or me ever found out about the shat that happened in my house, the house was already creepy. Once, my mom worked out overnight, and grandma only ever worried about my cousin and my brother, so I was up late playing Tony Hawk on the PS2, which was in the living room. We had two conch-shaped sofas, and I would join them together to make a bed, I'd lay there and play all night. But this night, I felt really heavy. I felt a huge presence in my back, a really big stress, like if somebody was there, somebody was watching everything I was doing. It was weird, horrifying, I couldn't bring myself to move, and when I did, I turned towards the door and saw nothing. But even then, I had the really heavy feeling that there was someone or something there, so I turned and looked at the kitchen hall and saw absolutely nothing. Then I heard the door make a huge bump noise and thought it was my mom, so I made a run for it and left the PS2 on. I slammed myself into my bed beside my brother and fell asleep. The next morning, I woke up and saw everything as I left it and realized my mom hadn't been home since I thought so. I turned on the TV and I saw the PS2 was frozen and the screen was stuck on the pause menu. The part that creeped me out was that the screen had some huge bars running down, and they seemed to interact with the interface. I thought this was just an error, so I didn't pay it much mind. 
Nothing else ever happened until my uncle bought my cousin a life-size doll. That's when things started getting fucked up. Pick related. That's how the doll looked, only it was bigger, and bigger eyes. Anyways, when they bought my cousin that doll, it was originally in the living room near the TV. She would always play with it and talk to it to the point where I thought she was mentally unstable. Fast forward a few days, my brother and I were watching TV at around 2 or 3 a.m., and the huge motherfucking doll suddenly falls on the floor. I get creeped the fuck out and nope to bed. My brother went ahead and picked it up, laughed at it, probably teased it, and then put it in its place. That same night, I had a really fucked up dream. I was awake in the middle of the night, playing PS2, just like the night I talked about in the last post. But when I turned around, I saw a little girl, about my age, she smiled and told me she wanted to play. She seemed generally innocent, but something was off. Her eyes were dark as fuck. When I accepted to play with her, she turned around and I saw a huge bullet hole in the back of her head. That's when she turned around and looked fucked up and skeletal. That's when I woke up and screamed like hell. My brother asked me what I had dreamt, and he said he couldn't sleep after putting it back in its place, because it kept falling or its hands were dropping. He said it creeped him out, so he decided to go chill in the room. That day we decided something was fucked up, and back then, we didn't have computers in our house, so we walked to the library near Brown High School, and investigated about what we could do if we thought the house was haunted. We read about laying out a candle and a cup of water next to it, and seeing if the ghost or whatever, accepted it as a peace treaty or some shat like that. So that night, we did that, we put a cup of water and a candle next to it. The next morning, the cup of water was half empty, and the candle was put out, dropped on the floor. We told my grandma about it, and she said it was probably my mom getting home drunk as fuck and paid it no mind. That day me and my brother were sure it was something, so we decided to look around in the house. Our house had an attic, a rather small one, but an attic nonetheless. We looked in the attic and found a gun. It was old as hell, and surprisingly, it had three rounds. I can't say the model of the gun because I have no clue what it is. Anyways, we decided to grab it and keep it a secret from my mom and grandma until we found out what it was completely. That day it was a Sunday, so my mom took my uncle and his family to the flea market, and me and my brother stayed at home looking for shat, specifically in my sister's old room. We looked in the top part of their closet and found a Ouija board. We didn't pay the Ouija board much mind, because we always knew that our stepsisters were fucked in the head. But when we opened the box it was in, the actual board was fucking trashed. I mean trashed to the point where the letters were illegible. Anyways, that day, it was around 5 or 6 in the afternoon and my mom hadn't come back. Grandma was away, and my brother and I were completely alone. We were hearing a shat ton of noise, and decided to turn on the radio to distract ourselves. We were listening to the local rock station, not because we were huge fans or anything, we just had a stupid belief that if we heard rock, it would be louder, and we wouldn't hear anything. We placed the radio near the right window, from my original post, because that was the only place it ever got signal. 
We were listening to music for a while until I got bored and tried to walk away from the radio. When I got maybe one or two meters away from it, the radio started making these horrible static noises. I got annoyed as fuck and turned it off. My brother was still shat scared, so I told him we should play PS2 until my mom came back. That day, my mom came back drunk as fuck, so she didn't even pay attention to us and just walked straight to the sofa to sleep. My grandma came home maybe 30 minutes after her and they started arguing. This argument was bigger than all of the other arguments. There was screams, pushes, hair pulling, and oh so much more. My mom finally decided that she was sick of it and said she was going to leave, so she stormed out the door, got in her car and drove away. That night I was crying my eyeballs out because I thought my mom had abandoned us, so I couldn't sleep, and neither could my grandma. At around 3 or 4 a.m., I was barely drifting off to sleep, when I heard the door making noise, and I thought mom was home, so I was happy and instantly jumped out of bed and was about to run to the living room, when I was going to run to the living room when my grandma grabbed my arm and said, SSHH, don't go, it's not your mom, I don't know if it's a burglar or anything, but it's definitely not your mom. So, I got all spooked and went back into my room. My dog started yipping his fucking and saw something about maybe the size of a three or four year old toddler. It was throwing stones at my dog, so I slammed on the window and it turned around to look at me, and I'll never forget the way its eyes looked. They looked shiny as fuck, but dim, it's hard to even explain. After it looked at me, it just dropped the stones and ran towards the alley where we could dump our trash, and I didn't see it again. The next morning, my uncle was mad at me and my brother because we supposedly trashed my cousin's doll. My grandma interrupted his bitching to tell him that she had been watching us all night and we didn't leave the room for Jack Shat. My mom came back that day in the night, only to sleep and argue again, but nonetheless, she was back. As of that day, and for about three or four months, Nothing new ever happened except that we felt a really heavy presence behind us every time we woke up in the night to go get water. It was all routinely, until the dishes started slamming in the night, the chairs would also move a slight amount, and we would always leave a glass of water for the ghost in the middle of the night, and it was always the same result. My grandma finally ended up believing me and my brother, and told my mom, so we went to visit the house owner and asked her all about it. Anyways, when we visited the house owner, who had a funeral arrangements business in downtown McAllen, she told us that a while ago, a cop rented that house with his daughter. He was outside arguing with the neighbors and had left his gun in the living room, and his daughter shot herself in the head. I immediately felt creeped out as fuck, because I had dreamt with an actual ghost from that place. The house owner said that both the girl and the dad died there. He self-ended shortly after the girl died. She told us to buy some spiritual shat and to set it on fire and cleanse the whole house at least three or four times per month as of then. The first time my grandma cleansed the house, I was actually scared. When she wanted to light the spiritual shat, the lighter kept on going off. When she finally managed to light it on, the smoke from it started going towards the walls. It was really messed up, creepy, like if someone was blowing it towards the walls or something.
After a few minutes of lighting it, roaches started climbing out of small, really small cracks in the wall, and all headed towards the bathroom. I ruled it out as normal, and thought it was just that roaches don't like smoke. When we finished cleaning the first time, my grandma went to the bathroom, and to our surprise, we didn't see a single roach, on the walls, on the floor, roof, anything. After the whole cleaning, the spoopy shat stopped for about three days, until my grandma and mom argued like hell for about two weeks straight. During those two weeks, the whole heavy ambient started to kick in again, and my grandma constantly took my brother, my cousin and me to the park, just to avoid being in the house. She used to say that the ghost would call her grandma, and even my aunt said she was being called mom, when my cousin was in school. She got freaked the fuck out and left the house and split up, just because of that. One time, my mom said she was taking a bath, and the bathroom door slammed open, while nobody was home. She immediately asked a medium to visit the house, and even the medium couldn't stand ten minutes in the house without feeling weak and wanting to leave. I said the medium was absolute bullshit, and told my grandma to call her Mexican witch friends over to see what the fuck was going on. It turns out, we had, duendas, witches goblins I think, it's a kind of ghoul or ghost or whatever, Mexicans believe in it, and it's basically an entity that feeds on negative energy. But that's not all we had, we also had the little girl's spirit in our house, causing a major racket in the night. Apparently, the girl had grown up without a mother, so she was hoping to find a mom in the women in my home. Three weeks after that, we saw something digging furiously in the backyard, and woke up and saw our dog strangled, and his chain was dug in the hole that whatever that thing was making. That's when we decided we'd leave the house, but my uncle started acting like a fucking creep, saying he liked it there, and how he felt he had a second daughter now. My uncle acted worse every day, sometimes he would skip his job just for the sake of being home when everybody else was gone. I never knew why, there isn't really a getting to the bottom of this ending to this story, it has always been creepy as fuck, but there are more stories about shat that happened while I lived in that neighborhood. For example, in the huge empty lot that was in front of my house, a body was washed up by the rain. My backyard was somewhat large, and we had a huge pickup truck in the back, it was tireless, basically just scrap metal with car seats, because even the motor was gone. When we were looking for stuff from the dead people who used to live there, we decided to look inside of that truck. We found a lot of albums of the man with his daughter, but we never found any pictures of the mom. Shortly before moving out, my mom was already in rehab, trying to get her life back into control, and my grandma was helping her. They were starting to get along pretty well, but even then, there was creepy shat going on in the house. The last night we spent there was a living hell. We had already packed up our stuff and we were going to leave the next day, but since we were going to drive a long way, my mom decided it would be better to move out early morning. That night I slept in the living room, the only thing we left connected was the TV, so we could watch it until we drifted to sleep. The TV kept on going to static, the bathroom light was flickering, we had left it on. I felt my throat dry up like a fucking desert, and I didn't want to get up to go for water to the kitchen. 
I finally decided to work up my fear and get up, and I walked to the kitchen for my glass of water, and saw something through the kitchen window. It was in my backyard, just creeping, looking around with a huge, stupid ear-to-ear -ear grin. It didn't seem to have lips though, only teeth and these huge black round eyes. The next day, we were going to pack up our shat, and my uncle just stood there, looking at us, like if we were Muslims or something. When we were done packing our stuff, we were going to help them pack theirs, but he pushed my mom and grandma away, and said he was going to stay. My cousin was too scared to stay, so she left with my grandma. My uncle's funeral is this Tuesday, even though he moved out of that house, he never was the same after that. His cause of death? He self-ended. My cousin is sleep-deprived and I think she has a tulpa or at least a serious brain deprivation because she apparently talks to someone all the time, even though she has no friends or phone. Be me. 16. Living in southeastern Texas. Went to high school football game to cheer on the team. It was an away game, so I rode the school buses there and back. Get back to my high school at midnight. The hour-long walk home commences. After about 20 minutes down the road, I have left civilization. Nothing but trees on both sides. Immediately feel like I'm being watched. Hear noises from just beyond the tree line. Twigs snapping and shit. Don't really think anything of it, but am on high alert because I know hogs are in the area. Noises getting closer. Listen intently. Suddenly hear a train down the tracks that are adjacent to the road. Don't see it and it never arrives just makes noises. Getting really paranoid now because I can still hear twigs snapping and something moving, but I can't place its direction due to the train. Walk faster. Near the supposedly haunted graveyard on the left side of the road. People were worried about the graveyard because Hurricane Harvey had flooded it. The superstitious thought the spirits were distressed. Never really bought into it until this event. Near shitting myself because of fear. Suddenly, the train noise is gone. Twig snaps. Look in the direction of the noises. Face staring at me through the trees. Looks like a starving naked albino with an abnormally wide grin. Arms are a foot too long for its body. Skin pulled tight around its ribs. It walked along the tree line watching me. It moved like it was new to walking. Its eyes were glued to me and it never blinked. Started to move faster, but it picked up the pace too. Thought I heard my name being called. Looked away for a split second to find out who was calling me. Looked back and it was gone. Sprint home terrified. When I get outside of my neighborhood hear a loud crash from the trees, but nothing is there. Sprint faster. When I get to my house I realize that nobody is home. Loosing my shit at this point. Rush to room and grab my rifle. Don't even try to sleep because I know I won't be able to. Think of playing Vidyal. Mere seconds after I turn on my TV, I hear a tapping at my window. Second story window. Grab rifle and slowly approach window. 
Throw open the curtains to see the face staring in at me. Shoulder the rifle to fire. It's gone. Sit in middle of room holding rifle tight against my body. Am about to fall asleep when I hear a voice from the other side of my door. Are you scared? Sounded human but not a familiar voice. Throw open my door to see that nobody is there. All the doors to my house are open and all the windows are unlocked. Close and lock my front door again and return to my room. Light is now off. Rush in with rifle. Turn on light. Nothing's there, but my wallet was open on my bed and my state ID was taken out and placed on top of it. Sit in center of room hugging my rifle till I pass out from exhaustion. My parents got to the house maybe an hour after I fell asleep. I don't know what it was or what it wanted, but I think it was just toying with me. I still see it in my dreams and wake up to tapping at my window. Don't even feel safe in my own bed. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. If you enjoyed tonight's story, then please subscribe to the channel as more green texts will appear daily. A new broadcast will appear when the clock strikes. Midnight Central Time. Thank you for returning to this broadcast, and welcome to new viewers joining us for the first time. If you like a video then feel free to subscribe. Any horror stories from Texas, share them down below. Hey I actually have a bunch from my dad and grandpa written up. Alright so forgive my formatting. I don't really post to 4chan a whole lot. I usually just lurk, X, but since the holidays, I've been able to hear more stories from my dad so I think you all might enjoy it. The first couple are from my grandpa. I had heard stories about my grandpa ever since I was a kid. He was my dad's dad and had experienced a lot in life, and this in turn generated some of the most amazing stories I had heard in my childhood. After the Korean War, he became a law enforcement officer in Lubbock, Texas in the late 50s, being the first Hispanic to be employed in the Texas civil service system there, and then from 1960 to 67, he served as a Texas border patrol agent, becoming one of the first of five Hispanics to be employed by that agency, up to that time. He later worked for the U.S. Customs Agency Service and the DIA in the 70s. My dad always told me some amazing stories, and not all of them fit here, and some are not for me to share, but he has two that although did not happen to him, have been told to my dad, who later told them to me, in pretty good detail. So the next two stories take place between 1960 and 1967. My dad's family was living in the southwest Texas town of Eagle Pass, which is a border town that borders the Mexican city of Piedras Negras. My grandpa was doing border patrol work there and in the nearby border towns that are scattered along the Rio Grande River. The Sand Trap Now before I get into this first story, I have to explain what a sand trap is. 
It's not necessarily a trap, exactly. There are some spots along the Rio Grande that are low enough to cross over without much effort. These areas are patrolled, but can't be monitored 24-7, especially back then, so sometimes immigrants pass through without detection. In places where the brush wasn't too thick, they would throw down layers of sand and smooth it out. This allowed them to monitor and count footprints and track who or how many people were crossing the river and into the United States. My grandpa worked the morning shift and arrived at the station to supposedly catch up on paperwork and get some coffee. That's where he found the late night officer, who I'll refer to as Mr. L at the station back from his post earlier than he should have. He was pale and looking very distraught. Grandpa asked Mr. L what his deal was and was told the following story. Mr. L had been hearing rumors of some creepy post out in Del Rio, a town about an hour north of Eagle Pass. Essentially, there was a low point in the river where immigrants would cross and enter private ranch land. Multiple BP agents would be sent to check the sand trap there to see if anything was turning up, but they never got any footprints. They needed someone out there to monitor it more closely, however nobody wanted to stay after dusk. The area was rumored to be unsettling and quite possibly haunted. Mr. L thought that was a crock of shit. My dad describes Mr. L as a very tall man, shaved head, and very tough. The kind of person that doesn't take any bullshit. He decided that he would go out there himself at night and show these other guys that they're just being a bunch of sissies. He drives to the Del Rio station and starts getting ready. A lot of the guys were telling him to not worry about it, they can just check the trap in the morning for footprints, and showed obvious signs of concern, but of course he brushed it off and was handed a large ring of keys. The keys were to unlock the multiple ranch gates in the county, as he would be driving deep into the middle of nowhere and through multiple properties. He got in his service vehicle, made sure he had all the supplies he needed, and took off down the old county road and then would later turn off to a gated ranch road. It took him over an hour of passing through multiple gates and driving unkempt dirt roads just to get to the spot. He left in the late afternoon, and by the time he arrived at the post, dusk was just upon him. He said the spot was loaded with mesquite, creosote and all sorts of brush. You couldn't walk through the brush unless you had a bush hog tractor clear the place out. There was, however, a small, worn path leading from the river that you could get through just barely. This is where the sand trap was placed, since it served as a choke point for any foot traffic. Of course, the trap is devoid of any footprints so he settles down and waits for nightfall. The night was pretty uneventful. The moon was out and lit up the area in a dim, ethereal light. The air was still and despite being out in the middle of nowhere in Texas, there weren't many of the usual night sounds he was accustomed to. He says he would have fallen asleep, but the lack of sound kept him on edge and made him unnecessarily anxious. At around 3 or 4 a.m., he was getting the feeling that maybe this spot wasn't so bad after all and his anxiety was from him just hearing rumors. Then he heard the faint sound of footsteps. He put out his cigarette and tightened his grip on his .357 Magnum sidearm. 
The sound of brush being pushed away and footsteps got closer. The moon was lower now and it was very dark, but he could see the silhouettes of three men come into view. They emerged from the brush, but something was off about their appearance. He thought maybe it was the lack of light, but their silhouettes were pitch black. It was dark, but these forms looked like they were darker than night. Their eyes were glowing similar to how a cat's would if you shined a light at their face in the dark. He called out to them but they kept moving, ignoring his commands to freeze. They walk in single file, slowly ambling along the path. He points his vehicle's spotlight at them and feels his blood run cold. The forms look like shadows cast on a wall in a puppet show. He said it looked like someone was walking in front of his spotlight but the shadows that were cast were disembodied and didn't belong to anything. He stood in awe and fear for probably 45 minutes. The forms were gone and there was no longer any sound coming from the brush. He went down to check the sand trap and found that it was still smooth and it was like nobody had ever crossed that area. He suddenly felt dreadful and as though something was watching him. The feeling wouldn't go away and he started to feel fearful. He got in his vehicle and left. He drove straight to Eagle Pass and since my grandpa came in early, he heard everything from the now shaken Mr. L. My grandpa didn't have a fun time as Mr. L. didn't bother to lock the numerous ranch gates behind him. I wish I could say this is the fun part of the story where my grandpa goes over there to close it for him and see the spot for himself but he had stuff to do and delivered the keys back to the Del Rio station and let them take care of it. Mr. L never went back to that area, but he stopped making fun of his fellow colleagues' stories. Funnily enough, not much changed about him. He wasn't scared of anything and was a mean guy all around. But whenever Mr. L retold the story at later times, my dad could tell that it was an event that really shook him. My grandpa continued to hear stories about that remote Del Rio post, but over time he heard less about it as he was given assignments that took him away from that town. He believes it was haunted and people said it was an evil place, and although they never caught anybody in that area in his seven years as a border patrol agent, there surely was something crossing over. This one is another one of my grandpa's border patrol stories. It's another one that didn't happen to my grandpa, but was told by his colleague as they were exchanging stories one morning at the station. His colleague, who we will call Angus, was another one of those true Texan, no bullshit types. He graduated from Texas A&M University, was a bona fide cowboy, and had worked as a ranch hand for years before coming onto the Texas border patrol. He would patrol ranches and other properties near the border on horseback, and would monitor sand traps and look for anything or anyone suspicious. This one instance took place near Rio Grande City. He was on horseback in the middle of nowhere on a ranch in Star County, Texas. The sun was hot, and he hadn't come across anything or anybody for hours. He was miles away from any service road, much less a county road, and he started to get thirsty. He took a quick break to drink some water and get his horse hydrated, too. He wiped the sweat off his brow when maybe 500 feet away, he saw a figure moving across the plains at a decent pace. He took a sip out of his canteen and got his binoculars out. 
he could see it was an older man, with a cowboy hat riding a horse at a slight trot. Angus closed his canteen and put his binoculars back around his neck. He radioed in the incident and mounted his horse and took off after the person, hoping to intercept him. He started off with his horse at a full gallop, kicking up dust behind him. The area was hilly and he passed a bend and saw that the rider was now further away than he was before. Confused but determined, Angus drove his spurs into the side of his horse to goad it into going faster. They started to gain ground on the other rider. He disappeared around another bend but Angus was close behind. When Angus came around the bend, he saw that the rider was even further away. Angus started to get pissed off. Obviously the guy was fucking with him and he was ready to apprehend him. He gets his horse to go even faster. His hat was barely hanging on, and everything was shaking and starting to come loose from their holsters and bags. He gained on the figure yet again, but after another bend, the figure came even further away. He had never made his horse go this fast. Its grunts were harsh and labored. After each bend, the figure got further and further away, until it finally disappeared. For fear of his horse's safety, he decided to call off the pursuit and radio and that the suspect had got away. He dismounted and gave his horse some water. They had probably traveled about 5 to 10 miles from where they originally spotted the lone horseback rider. He decided to double back. He started to notice that the only tracks were his own. No other tracks but the ones from his horse were found the whole way back. He told everyone on the McAllen horseback unit about it, and asked them if they ever experienced anything like it, but not one of them believed him. Said it was just a mirage, or he had heat stroke. Angus assured them that he knew the signs of heat stroke in his limits. He had been a ranch hand for years, after all. He wouldn't have continued if he knew he was not well enough to do so. He let it go for a little while but told my grandpa eventually when he did some work in Eagle Pass. He never seemed scared about it but perplexed. He continued working in that area of Star County but he never experienced anything like that ever again. Alright one last one I guess. This is my dad's UFO story. This story takes place truly in the middle of nowhere in the mid-1970s, when my dad was about 11 or 12. The way my dad described where it happened was, by Alpine, kind of close to Terlingua, which is funny, because those towns are like 80 miles apart. If you get a map of Texas though, and look below Marfa and Alpine, and a little bit above Big Bend National Park, you'll see a vast expanse of nothing which is hundreds of thousands of acres of private ranch lands and just general Texas nothingness. My dad was with his uncle and his cousins, who had a property deep in the middle of nowhere, and they were going to stay for a few days at said property. It was accessible by traveling over 40 miles of dirt road and this meant over two hours of slow, bumpy riding. The day was hot, but beautiful not a single cloud in the sky. When they finally got to the small property, they started to unpack the truck and put their belongings inside. My dad's uncle said that they had to climb a hill to get to a well so they could gather water. So they all climbed the hill to where the well was located with their buckets and canteens. 
my dad was fooling around waiting for his turn and kicking some rocks around. That's when one of his cousins pointed at the sky. There was a small cloud in the sky, and it was the only cloud in the sky. He said it was small, gray, and very round. Almost a perfect sphere. Everyone stopped what they were doing to watch it. It slowly got smaller and smaller, and then finally disappeared. They thought it had evaporated, and thought it was a cool little weather phenomenon. When my dad took his turn at the well, his cousin shouted that it was back. My dad turned around, and sure enough, it was. It was in the same exact spot and was static in position, but once again, it grew smaller and smaller, then disappeared. Then it would reappear. They watched this go on for about 15 minutes. My dad, being as young as he was, thought it was some kind of alien spaceship. His uncle was watching it through his binoculars and handed them to my dad to see. My dad said it didn't look like a cloud, but like a swirling cloud of smoke. It would shrink into itself, then reappear out of thin air. He said he was struck with fear and felt the urge to lay down. He was trembling and didn't know why he felt so nauseous and frightened. His uncle ushered everyone off the hill and back down to the cabin. He felt better after a few minutes and nothing else like it happened over the weekend. I asked him when I was at his house if maybe it was a smoke cloud or smoke signal, but he explained how there was no column of smoke connected to it and it was too high up to be dust or anything else. They also couldn't figure out why it was just stuck in the sky, in that one spot, shrinking into itself and then reappearing, like a creepy pulsing dance. He went back out there a couple times after that but never experienced anything remotely like that again. There's plenty of stories about that area. The Marfa lights have been debunked, but there are other mysterious happenings that come out of Big Bend and between Highway 67 and 118. That's all I have for now. Not precisely Texas, but still the border. Dad used to go back and forth to Mexico during the 80s because he had some friends living in Reynosa. Once, one of his friends started telling stories about ghosts in the Rio Grande area west of Reynosa. Friend tells a story about one night where some co-workers and him were chilling after work and saw a woman and some kids disappear into the water. Freaked the fuck out and called Mexican police to report what just happened. Police arrived, they searched the river with no luck and an officer told them it was a pretty common sight because illegal immigrants used to drown or otherwise die in the desert a lot. Weeks later, friend and his co-workers are listening to music and chilling in the same spot when they see the same exact woman and her kids go into the river and drown. Dad's friend starts tripping balls because she looked the same and wore the same clothes. Next day, they tell the story at work and an older supervisor says that the drowned woman is a common sight in that particular area of the river, along with La Llorona and some big ass birds that look like owls but are larger than vultures or eagles. I also have an uncle who says he was chased by a hellhound while driving a pickup truck between La Casita and Sullivan City. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. If you enjoyed tonight's story, then please subscribe to the channel as more green ticks will appear daily. A new broadcast will appear when the clock strikes.
midnight central time. Del Rio, Texas and Acuna, Coahuila Childhood Spooks. Writer's note. Hey Anons, my name is Richard and you've probably seen me in the comment section before. I've been trying to comment on, that's what's up. Or at least acknowledge I've listened to most videos whether that be going to sleep or commuting to and from work. I've especially commented on videos that mention Mexico, Maryland, Washington DC, and Eagle Pass, Texas, well any part of Texas really. Eagle Pass was our main high school rival, which inspired me to write this and pay my hometown some justice. I've also spent some time living in Virginia as well. But tonight's main story is a tale of two cities, Del Rio, Texas and Ciudad Acuna, Coahuila. To properly access my emotions and memories, I listened to some depressing eerie music, like the Silent Hill 2 soundtrack. It's the equivalent of trying to imagine what terrified thoughts you would have as a kid. Origin the story behind Acuna's founding is that it was settled in 1877, but not officially named until 1880 under the name of the state's governor, Garza Galan. In 1912, it was renamed to Acuna to pay respects to the Saltillan poet Manuel Acuna, who committed a livent. One would assume a generally superstitious culture would be more wary about naming a town after someone who left in the worst way possible. Now the American side was originally called San Felipe del Rio and is known for its spooks as well. The first hacienda was built in 1862 by Paula Lasoya Taylor. She originally immigrated there from Tamaulipas, Mexico where my mother is from. The hacienda is essentially a type of plantation and she directly hired people she knew in her previous city to follow along with the guarantee of work. She also ordered the construction of a sequas, an open-air type of aqueduct used in Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula. I've had nightmares about these water systems and water in general. So we'll circle back to these. The American government didn't start investing into Del Rio until after the Civil War. That's when the first railroad started, beating out neighboring Comstock as the freight hub of Texas's armpit. There was also a sizable increase in Freemason Italian immigrants in the 1880s. Namely the Taney family which carved many of the stones in public plazas, and another family that I cannot recall the name of, that founded the Val Verde winery. To this day it is the longest running, independently operated and owned winery in the state of Texas. I remember hearing in high school that it was all of America, but I cannot find any sources to verify that claim. Grandma's house. 
I would spend a lot of time in Mexico as a child, mainly weekends and summers off from school. This was in the late 90s and early 2000s. Once the cartel shenanigans started in the mid-2000s my family noped out of there. My maternal grandmother's house was located on the edge of the city. Before they built colonias, the Spanish phrase for housing projects in America or council estates in the UK, it was one of the few brick and mortar houses at the edge of the city. There were too many wood, plastic and aluminum sheet metal shanty houses for me to count. As a kid I thought they were just normal houses, or people who enjoyed the outdoors. I had no idea my grandparents were moderately successful. Even at that, there was never any hot water during the winter time. There was no infrastructure for clean or warm water. There wasn't really a road, but just a path wide enough for two vehicles between my grandma's house and the adjacent concrete structures. I never really saw anyone walk in and out of those concrete houses as a kid. I used to see and play with plenty of children from the shanty houses however. We held carne asadas, birthday parties, piñatas and vigils in which we invited the neighborhood to visit. The stories I associate with my grandma's house are connected to the wood line, past the shanty houses. The ominous mesquite trees look like twisted people writhing in pain whenever the wind blows. In Dante's Inferno there is a certain fear of forest. In the introduction the infamous words are, all ye who enter here abandon all hope. There is also the forest in the seventh circle of hell that is made up of people that have committed brutality, and their curse is to be trees for the rest of eternity. That is what that forest reminds me of. A place not for civilization, for adults, and definitely not for kids. I think what makes it all the worse is one of my dozen or so aunts telling me clowns live in those woods. I think I filled in the gaps with my ADHD imagination, as we had previously gone to a Mexican circus sometime in 1998. I remember being terrified of the clowns, carnies, and all sorts of weird folk. American circuses are rough but something about Mexican circuses that are just that much more terrifying. I knew they would lay down their caravans and trailers somewhere near where my grandma's house was, and then perform at the city square. I don't know if it was a tall tale, or a retelling of a kid that got kidnapped by a clown, chiniques or duendes. Duendes are the Spanish word elves, goblins, and all sorts of magical short folks. Chinique is an indigenous Mexican word for a forest spirit, almost like an elemental but the height of a duende. The kids who were more in tune with local culture didn't get told to stay out of the woods because of clowns like I did, but because of duendes and chiniques. My American self missed out on that specific cultural terror. La Mano Pachona. The direct translation for this is, the hairy hand. A disembodied, ring-wearing, nails that are like talon hands come to scratch your feet at night if you misbehave, or play with your toys after sundown, conveniently at midnight on the weekends. I've seen this when it gets a lot of publicity on mainstream American channels, but I never knew that specific lore. I was always told it was a hand that was cut off of a cursed man, circus performer, or some other type of dastardly ghoul. 
A similar version that had probably been adapted by grandmother to scare my mother was that of a witch that sits in a tree, and will also scratch your feet at night with her cold disgusting harpy-like hands if you misbehave or play with your toys after the sundown. This one appears to be much more tied to my family, and not anyone else. My cousin. I vividly remember my cousin who I will call Paul, shooting a pigeon with a BB gun at my maternal grandma's house. He aimed the red rider or whatever and shot it once in the wing. Then as it lay there in agony from the high fall, he fired another shot through the animal's breast. He claimed to have only killed it aiming for something else like a pecan or telephone pole. I felt very bad for the bird, even though a different pigeon had shat on me before I really didn't think this specific one deserved it. We weren't hunting, we weren't going to eat it, it was childhood cruelty front and center. I didn't like the way Paul held it up by its limb, disjointed wing. This macabre image instilled a love and appreciation of birds that is still here today. His victory was short-lived, as his dad who was a known womanizer and alcoholic was not going to deal with his shit. He proceeded to beat the ever-loving hell out of Paul. I don't think Paul deserved that either, I don't think more violence would bring back the bird. Now as an adult, I know full and well that is textbook serial killer behavior. Paul was much more violent than me and would actively try to pressure me into joining some stupid gang. I think the most stereotypical moment of a dare peer pressure event happened to me when he tried to convince me to smoke weed on the day of my state exams in elementary school. We were the same age at 11, but I had never touched the stuff and never had out of personal preference. I just felt terrified at the thought of throwing away my future for a stupid high. When I was six years old, Paul would even treat me poorly then. I was younger, more naive, and suffering from clear symptoms of ADHD. This made me weird, neurotypical. I had specific interest in video games, cartoons, and difficulty remembering social customs or etiquette. This made me prime real estate for Paul. He would taunt me mercilessly and constantly say things about how I was so socially lacking and would never be cool. I remember our parents were outside, our fathers drinking and smoking, with our moms keeping them company talking about the day. Paul picked up a two or four pound dumbbell and proceeded to hit me on the back of the head. I blacked out and he left me there. It was a completely unprovoked attack. I remember being in so much pain and having to crawl through the living room to the kitchen door and shout for my family's help. They thought with a concussion <coughs> you're not supposed to go to sleep because you'll become comatose, so they kept me up the rest of the night. I don't know what happened to Paul, but like the pigeon incident I assume his dad beat his ass. I know I got weirder from there and had a harder time fitting in. Concussions are known to exacerbate ADHD. I had a nasty in 2015 snowboarding, and that wrecked my life as a young adult. Parts of me are angry at him for cursing my life, but a part of me knows I can't change the past and must accept the shitty hand I've been dealt. Last one about Paul. In 2008, he and his dad moved into the house across the street from my paternal grandma in Del Rio. We were teenagers by this point, and he would still smoke weed and I lacked friends. 
I didn't have anybody I could really talk to outside of him. We spent most of that summer eating food and watching shitty 90s movies. There were some moments where his nice attitude was shown through. Not the fake altar boy routine he'd put in front of our family members, but Paul being genuinely funny and being considerate. He was never nice. Any flaw I had would be pointed at it, and in turn I became the same kind of malicious critic for a while as well. I grew out of it through journaling, ADHD meds, and therapy as an adult. I eventually stopped trusting him after we had a paranormal experience together at the end of summer in 2008. It's strange, how you just kind of expect things to never change when you're a teenager. Neighborhood friends will never move away, the old man down the street will never move to a home or lose his wife, the house at the boundary of our dead end street will never complete the construction. Paul will always be across the street whether I want him to be or not. It was a day just like any other really, he smoked weed and I opted out. I think I might have a beer or whatever with him but I was still anti-pot. I used to look up to him as weird, be like your cooler bully of a cousin. This supernatural experience is precisely why I didn't trust him, it was my lack of a better term, red pill. That he isn't right about everything, that I am not an idiot and I am not worthless. We walked to the end of our street which had a creek that was filled this year. The incomplete house's yard touched directly to that creek and the small wooden path. This would be better named as an Asequa that I mentioned earlier. I followed this one when it was dry and ended up behind the elementary school a mile away. The old wooden bridge was rotting, some logs floated away and it was difficult standing on the surface of rocks in the running water without slipping. This is where Paul dropped a large rock into the running water of the Asequa and splashed the shit out of me from top to bottom. He ran away from me as if the rage in my eyes could hurt him. I've never known him to fear me, or to be spooked that I could fight back. Maybe he just didn't want to get his starched white tee and dicky pants soaked. He made a right and ran on the edge of the creek bed and unfinished house to the concrete wall that separated all the houses on my paternal grandma's side of the street from a large empty field. There was a small passage that you had to be extra secure with your footing risk slipping into the creek or falling of barbed wire placed there to keep animals out of the residential area. He ran right through it and kept running past the initial tree line that buffered the creek and field. It took me a bit longer to react and get to the wall and still managed to scrape myself with the barbed wire. I was bleeding, and I turned the wall and saw a man wearing Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. White overalls and a hat I think? Mid-forties maybe fifties. He is obviously of Mexican descent, and just stared at me while he held what looked like either a tackle or toolbox, and either a walking cane or fishing rod. This man said nothing, I had never seen him in my neighborhood before. The house wasn't being finished because of the 2008 housing crisis. The original owners could not afford to keep it and the bank took it back. There were also no cars parked in front of that house, and I knew the neighbors who lived in all surrounding properties. I don't know if this was God, the devil, a ghost, or a spirit. But this was most certainly a vibe check. I felt this man tell me something without saying anything, 
whilst I apologized for running up to him and almost bumping into him. I kept going after my cousin Paul and he eventually stopped running. I asked him, dude why did you run? Why did you stop? Did you see that old man? Oh I stopped because you couldn't get me wet anymore. I'm meeting up with my girlfriend later and don't want to ruin my outfit. Dude, didn't you see the old man? I thought that's why you stopped. That you talked to him or something and said we're just playing around getting off his property soon. Dude, what are you talking about old man? I didn't see anybody back there. I think what that apparition was telling me, in a weird and esoteric way, was to have mercy. Not infinite forgiveness, but just mercy and not to be vengeful. Not everyone deserves the equally bad treatment that they receive from their aggressor. Sometimes it's better to understand where they come from, and why they act like that. It's no secret Paul's home life sucked. He would call my family rich for being able to get McDonald's combo meals occasionally when both of my parents were out of a job due to the recession. He talked about only being able to afford dollar menu items, and how I didn't know how good I had it. Yeah, I guess I must agree with him. As flawed as my parents are, they weren't violent or as vicious as his. Nor as completely absent. The generational trauma runs deep. I haven't had any kids, but I believe he already has a daughter. Acuna Spooks. My paternal grandparents would tell me about Lupe the Loca, a crazy woman who would take off her clothes in public. As a Mexican, the term mental health doesn't come up a lot. You're either normal or crazy. There is very little wiggle room for the in-between. She apparently had AIDS or some other deadly disease from years of intravenous drug use and selling herself. Apparently, she was like a local celebrity, kind of like the Florida man who licks the bottom of people's shoes but instead would offer you AIDS-infected intercourse no matter the time or place. I remember going to a pharmacy in 2006 to pick up some meds because I had the flu and seeing a panhandler with my mom and paternal grandma. In the car they started talking about how she wore similar clothes to Lupe, but wasn't her. They couldn't see her face, and she was wearing a type of Gora, which is a knitted women's hat in the middle of summer. Lupe would wear this kind of hat exclusively to cover up her thinning hair. We walk in undisturbed, get the meds, and on our way out she finally turns away from the intersection and towards us. This woman had necrotic black flesh on her nose and cheeks. I could see directly into her sinus cavities and how dried out they had become. There is nothing quite like the sheer terror of walking body decomposition. I had never felt more disgusted in my life up until that point. I watched David Lynch's Mulholland Drive at 24 years old, and the scene where the disgusting homeless woman turns around was emotionally triggering for me. I know it's just a film, but seeing something that parallels a traumatic event in your childhood is terrifying. I never heard any updates about Lupe the Loca after that. I assume she passed away due to exposure or AIDS complications. In 2006 my mother wanted to throw a huge birthday party for my little brother in Acuna so people that couldn't cross into the states could attend and have a great time. 
Well, this backfired because nobody had transportation to the venue and thus my father, my aunts, and everyone else was left picking people up and the groceries needed for the barbecue. This left me and my mom alone in this child's villa, at least 100 feet long from entrance to end, where the restroom was located and 25 feet wide. There was an entire wall made of sliding glass doors that we opened to let some of the dust out. Me and my mother worked on putting things together for the party when we heard a large, heavy crash in the back. This villa was in a nicer, gated community far away from people that would throw rocks or crash parties. I was terrified, this was before my experience with Paul and the only adult with me was also scared shitless. We had no idea what it could have been, and it was in April one of the nicer months. It wasn't 100 degree weather yet, but it also wasn't freezing. I think I stopped believing in God after this incident, as we started praying on our knees. We prayed until our knees hurt so that someone would get there, my father, aunts, uncles, whoever. That we wouldn't be here alone. Maternal Nightmares Another story that really wrecked me is the condition of my mother's siblings. My maternal grandmother was auctioned away to an old, rich, and green-eyed Spaniard by her indigenous parents back in the 1950s, at the age of 15. She bore seven kids, my mother being the last one from the Spaniard in the 1970s. I won't call him grandfather, but I will call him the Spaniard and as such he forced my grandmother and her kids to live on his ranch which was adjacent to the indigenous community. Eventually my grandma discovered that he was technically married, and polygamy is illegal in Mexico. She left his ass in a heartbeat, and married the trash man that was my step-grandfather. My mother's stepfather was born of incest. He nubs for fingers, and could only really use his thumbs, ring fingers, and pinky to do things. Apparently, he assaulted a lot of my mother's siblings and she was not touched thankfully. When this man died, she didn't tell me about it until after her mother passed. I don't blame her, I truly feel there is a special place in hell for a man like that. So deformed, bloated with a giant belly that they called him, El Gordo, or, the fat man. He would get drunk and have issues with his diabetes and continue to drink Coca-Cola made with pure cane sugar. I remember playing Dead or Alive 2 as a kid and seeing the main villain Tengu looked like him. His dark leathery skin, snow powder white hair, small beady eyes, and abnormal gait. With such a terrible father, my mother's half-sisters are all handicapped from the beginning. The oldest, Patty, who immigrated to America first has been married countless times, naturalized as a citizen and her oldest son was a thief you could not bring around to your house. They wouldn't have power or running waters in America of all places. She would never get her shit together, and eventually even tried to sell her newborn to my mother who commented how adorable she was. I don't think anybody has ever been cut off from my parents' generation except for her. She was a known party animal with little respect for the safety of herself, her children, and her boyfriends. Her thief of a son is a U.S. citizen and last I heard trying to become a priest of the faith he obviously doesn't believe in, just like our cousin Paul being a bona fide altar boy. 
Then there is the second oldest, Isadora. She immigrated to America properly and had all the proper visas in place. She lived with us and the third sister, Emerald. Isadora met a man who gave us an alias, and they eventually got pregnant and got married. But she refused to birth her son in America because of some stupid Mexican pride bullshit. She threw away all that she ever worked for in the US simply to move right back to Mexico and give birth to him there. This kid is apparently learning English and for years my mom hyped him as someone who missed me and always asked about me. I met him as an infant, maybe as a toddler and had not been to Mexico in almost 14 years by the time I visited Acuna in 2019. The first thing this kid asked me was, can you get me a visa? Like come on man at least say hi or hello. Apparently, he's also interested in the priesthood, and is attempting to get to Canada instead of the US. Finally, Emerald is a morbidly obese woman of at least 300 pounds. She has always been fat, yet claims she was skinny at some point in her youth. She was like 3 or 4 when she didn't have any noticeable tires on her. She had never been intimate with someone and when she finally was the guy never called her back. She ended up birthing a bastard son and has had various men at rock bottom become her significant other. One of them was notorious for having a separate family, and she fell for it so hard. I guess desperation, self-hate, and guilt really make you believe whatever your source of affection is giving you. She got the Mexican version of CPS called on her because she was too lazy to feed her kid. Ironic how a 300 pounds woman won't feed her kid, and his vitamin deficiency was severe enough for the school to notice. Apparently, she would always give the child a chance to run to the bodega and he had been living off snacks and junk food since my maternal grandmother passed. I don't have enough memories of Patty to form a vision, but Isadora and Emerald were always very loving. They remind me a lot of Giovanna and Tomasa from the Book of Sand story, The Two Sisters, on fellow spooky YouTuber, Chas Channel. I do love my aunts but seeing their bad life choices make them age into late 30s, early 40s by their late 20s made me want to do better. Del Rio Terrors. I've talked a lot about private and more youthful events that have happened to me. I think it's about time I start discussing the more hectic ones. In 2010, there was a notorious yarn weave by the name of Luis. He was very much a cringe-inducing person, who would have to one-up everyone on everything. One of his worst traits was that he absolutely had to wear earphones 24-7. As a kid who grew up poor, I saw that as luxury not a necessity like he did. He finally told us something that was believable compared to the rest of his conquest of women, drinking and partying. This involves him walking by his house near Lake Amistad, which itself is a man-made lake that flooded a canyon that had ranches, homesteads, and Paleolithic Native American artifacts. There were plenty of caves with drawings of animals, people, and allegedly thin tall giants. I think the closest approximation I can get to is the Namekian drawings on the caves during the Dragon Ball Z Lord Slug movie. It apparently is based on a southern Algerian cave painting. Anyways, 
Luis apparently got into an argument where his mom didn't get him the correct McDonald's combo and as such he slammed the door on her face and went outside for a walk. Headphones in, Luis began walking in the inky darkness of Lake Amistad. This guy kept walking for about 20 minutes until he got the edge of the development, using the very few streetlights as markers. Maybe I didn't like this guy because I could especially relate to disagreement with his mom. Maybe not over something as trivial as a wrong order, but I was just as ridiculous when I was a teen. The cold November air was crisp and stung his asthmatic lungs the more and more he exerted himself in it. He eventually hit the final streetlight and was ready to turn around. Once he started moving again, he saw there was a dog at the next intersection in that development. While technically a gated type of community, there was nothing but the desert and the lake as natural borders. This could have been a cougar, a wolf, a coyote, a fox, or a rabbit dog. He mentioned being disinterested until started walking and saw the dog off to say the least. Once he got closer, his glasses less self finally started to make heads and tails of the creature. Heads and tails are exactly right. The dog had a warped skull, almost if somebody took a dog's head and inverted it. It appeared as if the eyes were on its jaw and the ears on the throat. The tail was a long, whip-like protrusion that looked almost like a tendril, like an afterthought of what a dog with an iguana's tail would look like. The more he walked, the more the dog thing wagged its tendril. Eventually the dog was out of his periphery, and he was about 15 minutes from home. At another dead-end side street, he sees a figure standing in the cast of the amber streetlight. He thought it might have been another person enjoying the cold November air, possibly somebody else walking to clear their mind. This man had incredibly tall proportions and appeared to have been at least six foot five. Luis looked me right in the eyes as he said this to me one day, and to this day I know he wasn't lying. He saw this person who was standing there, stand up again. Like this thing was on its knees. It wasn't at its full height before, and now it towered to maybe 9 or 10 feet. Like it gained a third of its height as it got on its weird, reverse chicken legs. Without his inhaler, without his glasses, with his phone almost dead from the music and no signal to call for help Luis began sprinting as fast as he could. He looked back and saw the lumbering giant take a few steps to skirt around the light cast by the street lights. He said he almost swore it was wearing a long dark coat, maybe a peacoat or a trench coat that it used to hide its appearance. I don't believe I've doubted him on this one. It wasn't performative when he told it to me, it was genuine fear and anxiety. It made me sure to never walk alone at night or to be without a phone or a pocket knife at the very least. This next story allegedly happened in Acuna in the 1980s and a different account was pinned on New Year's Eve 1999 going into the year 2000. The setting is always the same, it is El Coco Loco. The threads of a typical Faustian story are here, like the man who met the devil at the crossroads. Except there is nothing for sale here, this is the devil finding sinners who instead of living life virtuously are in this establishment cursing them for not bettering themselves. The story is that a woman danced with a very handsome man, 
until the music died down a bit and she heard his footfalls. They were not shoes, but hoofed animal sounds and a scratchy, clawing step. The devil had one goat leg and one chicken leg. You were not able to see it until it was already too late. This woman was his thrall, and there was no easy way of getting out. The two versions set in two different time periods always have it with, yep they saw the devil there on New Year's Eve at El Coco Loco. As if it actually happened and isn't a cautionary tale about not drinking or living a life full of sin. The two people who told me this were not aware of each other, and yet still believed it to be a real occurrence. The San Felipe stories. These next stories are very personal and took place on the Del Rio side, in the San Felipe neighborhood to be exact. This neighborhood was the original establishment of the city way back in 1862 when the first hacienda was built. It goes along the San Felipe Creek and has plenty of Freemason buildings. There is an old Harry Potter looking house that I took a shit in one circa 2011 or 2012. There is a staircase on the outside of the building that had a closet underneath the top landing with a relatively new porcelain toilet inside of it. I sacrificed my socks and muscle shirt that day. I don't know what compelled me to shit inside of it but it must have been my undiagnosed Crohn's disease. I guess that's where I pissed off the supernatural and have been dealing with their antics ever since. That same night we were doing a walking tour of San Fe, me and Arnaldo. We ended up walking by the Brinkley Mansion, which is home of Dr. John R. Brinkley. Allegedly this guy had tunnels to Mexico and experiment on wetbacks. In reality he was a quack, who found the panacea to vigor, cancer, and all sorts of ailments. What it might be, you ask? Putting an animal testicles into men, and animal ovaries into women. Most of the time they would have a placebo effect of feeling better, but they would get violently ill, develop cancers, or outright create a cyst out of the foreign matter. This disgusting man built a giant mansion across the Val Verde winery and has a statue of the Roman founding myth in the front of it. The green one is most likely 1980s or 1990s. The pink one is current day, I can verify as of the 2020s the house is pink. After that we went to another nutty attraction, the Midget House. This is a place we've been to before multiple friends of ours but there were only two of us and it was getting dark fast. I don't think it was illegal stepping on there, as they had a reputation for letting kids explore and check it out. It might not seem as small on camera, but in person it's like a one-third of the size of a real house. There were disturbing dolls and artifacts from the 60s, maybe 50s. Like toys somebody would be playing with over half a century ago. After this we ended up at the Whitehead Museum, which has been notorious for hauntings. Arnaldo wouldn't fuck around with anything supernatural unless I dragged him along, and he very well would not be tempting spirits. He saw a lady in old 1800s where look at him from one of the top windows of the museum. I tried to tell him maybe it was a performer, or a local weirdo. He was dead centered on it being impossible for them to disappear. This happened while I was reading the plaque, and he basically ran away and I looked up and saw no one there. 
We finally get to the safest or perhaps most anglicized part of San Felipe on the other side of the winery, away from the Brinkley Mansion. This felt like one of those Truman Show bits, where all the houses are there, lights are on, curtains wide open, no blinds, maybe one or two cars but next to little no activity. There were also no street lights either. We started joking about there being a town conspiracy, La Puerta Colorada. In English that translates to the red door. There were dozens of red doors, which was such an odd color for a small Texas town. We hypothesized maybe the city's only newspaper, the police department, local and federal government agencies are working together to keep all the weird shit down. All these red doors are a discreet but tacky way of marking your allegiance to the order of things. We finally went home after this, getting picked up by my mom at the local supermarket since she had picked up some groceries as well. One night in November of 2011, we went to check out my mutual friend's haunt trailer. It was on his plot of land in San Felipe but didn't find any spooks. We did however see an apparition. I was a slow piece of shit then, so Arnaldo and John were in the lead, while Merck and I were trailing behind them. Arnaldo said it was the spirit of his deceased sister that he saw a young girl running away from us. We eventually ended up at a random church with a red door and massive trees that soured our view. It was like we had entered the seventh circle of hell all over again. I went back to that church months later and found zero evidence of trees being there. Not even stumps or holes from excavators that would be used to dig into the earth. There's also an abandoned building in historic downtown, essentially on the same road as the Whitehead Museum. It's empty, and the basement door is always unlocked. I have some friends who had gone in there, and reported nothing incredible of interest, just faded paint, leaky pipes, and no human activity. The Paul Pogue Theater has also been rumored to be haunted, but I've only been there a few times as a kid on field trips and don't really have experience with it unfortunately. There was a huge flood on August 22, 1998 that destroyed a lot of the San Felipe community that was on the creek. This made me fearful of the water, as I thought I was genuinely going to drown. I had bizarre dreams that were set in a sequa from earlier, but it was reminiscent of Spyro the Dragon on the PS1. Almost otherworldly, but still home under a different filter. I had to jump from stone lily pad to stone lily pad and risk drowning to get home. I finally got to a weird moat castle and managed to get the rest of my family up the way. There is persistent chatter in some barber shops and bars that more people died than what was officially recorded. FEMA ended up buying most of the land in the flood zones from what I remember seeing the posted up signs with their initials on it. childhood dreams in Del Rio. In this one dream, the old lady next door invited my mother and paternal grandma for coffee and cookies. Whatever older Mexican ladies like to do to gossip, she eventually grew her arms out incredibly long and started choking my family and I was helpless. My punches didn't hurt her and I saw her skin turn green like the witch in Wizard of Oz. This was so damn disturbing, I felt so violently helpless. 
I woke up being suffocated by this giant white blanket. I was four years old and sleeping in my parents' bed out of fear. This was circa 1997, maybe 1998. Another dream was seeing my uncle getting absorbed by Cell from Dragon Ball Z in front of my paternal grandma's house. This was a disgusting sight, I think it might have been 2002 or 2003. Eventually he feuded with my paternal grandparents and they never made up. He passed away from diabetes, cancer and smoking. He went blind by the end of his life and I never got to say goodbye to him. This one takes place in San Angelo, Texas but it's still worthy of an inclusion because the whistling ties in directly to the final tale. I was wide awake, but I wish it was a dream because at least then I could wake up from it. Circa 2003, and we just moved there. I am up late at night watching Adult Swim after I got tired of playing Beautiful Joe on my Nintendo GameCube. Cowboy Bebop comes on, and it is the episode called Pierre Le Fou. It is the only session named after a movie, and not a song. The weird giant man who is a clown, and impossible to kill whistles as his call sign. This reminded me a lot of the clowns in the forest I mentioned earlier, and eventually the episode ends. I go back to my GameCube. It's technically past midnight. I'm still playing with my toys, even if they're electronic ones. I start to hear whistling. I look outside and I think I see a man in a trench coat. I blink and nothing there. I think the show has just spooked the shit out of my fourth grade brain. I decide to call it and try to go to sleep. I can remember clearly this is where my lifelong insomnia started. The final tale. This is my go-to horror story. I mentioned Native Americans, I mentioned harpy-like witches, and all sorts of weird paranormal things. Greetings, and bienvenue, midnight crew. Thank you for returning to this broadcast. And welcome to new viewers joining us for the first time. If you like a video, then feel free to subscribe. Be me, seven years old. Live in Bumpick Nowhere, Texas on 30 acres of wooded property. Parents saved up money to build a cool house after having lived in a shack in the back of property for many years. Move into a new house. First thing they do is get me a bunk bed. Heck yeah.jpg. Sleep on top bunk for a while, then start switching where I feel like sleeping. Have sleep paralysis frequently when on bottom bunk. It's scary, but kind of cool sometimes. Always staring straight up at the board of the top bunk when it happens. I sleep on my side, but sleep paralysis happens on my back. Every time I figure out how to move, it wakes me up. One night during one of my sleep paralysis times, I find myself on my back, but with my head to the side. Looking at the other side of the room, bed is against the wall in a corner. There is a figure in between my bookshelf and TV stand had one of those tiny TVs with a VCR built in that we got from an old second-hand store that doesn't exist anymore one town over. Peripherals showed two other figures in the room, but they are shadow. The one directly in my vision has a white face. Freaking out.jpg. 
Try really hard to move and I'm able to swing my right arm over. Fall out of bed. That arm works for some reason and start crawling towards the figure. WTFY? Vampire. Is all my little brain can think. But I keep going towards it. Get to its feet. Black out. Wake up next to the window. Scramble to the window just in time to see red, blue, white lights on a disc zooming out of the yard. Every time I think about it, it makes my eyes water, like I'm not supposed to think about it. Adult now, still want to know what the fuck happened to me. Eyes still water when thinking about it. Another story from childhood. Be me, I think I was five. This was when we lived in the shack further back on the property. I was kind of a shitty five years old. Said something to my mom that made my dad mad. Dad refuses to talk to look at me for the whole night. Dad works as a nurse at a local hospital and is always on call. Gets a call at the dinner table and goes to work. Woken up in the middle of the night by my dad. Tells me to get my shoes on. Try to ask questions, get your shoes on, anon. Walks out of the room. Find dad outside my door. Takes me by the hand and leads me outside. It's pitch black. No idea of time. Leads me into the woods. Try to ask him questions, but he just shish me. Make it a ways in. Freaking out JPG. Think about wolves, snakes, creepy crawly things in the night. Let's go of my hand. Follow the sound of footsteps. Can't even see my dad. Just hear pine needles crunching. No idea of how much time passed. Find myself less scared by the time we loop back to the house. Don't see dad, but now I'm home. Go to bed and try to forget about it. Dad insists to this day that it never happened. I know it did. Another story from the property. Be me, I think about 10 at the time. This is after the house has been built. Like to go exploring in the woods with my dog. Having a good time. Gonna go back to the old house, the shack. A tree has fallen in the driveway that leads back to it, so I can't ride my bike. Dog is old. Sometimes likes to wander back to the new house to his favorite hole that he dug sometimes to lay down. I hang around and play with the ant lions under the old porch. Dog wanders back. Parents have an old trailer house on the property that they lived in before I was born while they were fixing up the shack. It's all sorts of messed up by this time. Hear a loud clunk sound behind me. I think it's just my dog messing with something. Hear it again. I realized it came from the old trailer about 30 yards away. Turn around and stand up. Start walking towards the trailer. Bad idea JPG. I'm about 20 feet away when I see what looks like a giant rat hop up on top of the trailer. It looks like it's about 3 feet tall standing on its hind legs. Paralyzed with fear, it looks at me. I swear it had red eyes. Freak the fuck out and run all the way back to the new house without looking behind me for a second. Tell my parents. They don't believe me. Don't even give possible explanations. Just say it was my imagination. Scared to go back in the woods for about two weeks, let alone go near that trailer for a very long time. I've since moved far away from the property, but my parents still live there. On that note, my parents lead me into the next story. Be me again. Five once more. 
Quite a few of my stories take place when we were in the shack at the back of the property. Mom wakes me up in the middle of the night. Dad is missing. We get on clothes and shoes and walk the driveway up. Me, obviously scared because I'm young and it's dark in the woods. Mom uses a flashlight. That makes it a little better. We walk a lot and it's deeply wooded. The trees hadn't been cut down yet to make a lot for the new house. Get to the end of the driveway where the gate is. It's about the length of two football fields, 200 yards, to get there. Dad is there. He is silent. Says helicopters came and men came down from the helicopters into the pasture across the road. WTF? Dad is visibly shaken. We walk back to the house and don't talk about it. In the morning Dad insists that he was awake and remembers everything. New development. Mom remembers being there with him. WTF? Mom, Dad, and myself all remember this one. Another. Be me. I think four at the time. In the shack house. I had a red metal railed bed. It was moved into the new house before I got my bunk bed. Mom tucks me in. I really liked the covers being tight when I was a kid. Feels good man.png. Look at the window. See blinking white lights. Lots of them. They make a filled circle. Fairies is what my little brain screams. I don't know if I should be excited or scared. Struggle to get out of bed because the covers are tight. One to tell mom and dad. Thank God I didn't see something I shouldn't have. I tell them I saw fairies. They say there is no such thing. It was probably lightning bugs. Mom tucks me back in and leaves the room. Feels good again. Look at the window because I'm still a little scared. Big mistake. GIF. Fucking glowing white cow skull in my window. Freak the fuck out and slip out of the covers from the pillow end. Run to the parents' room. I'm gonna sleep with you tonight. I don't really have an explanation as to what happened. I have ideas, but here is the story. I'm a freshly graduated high school student and on my way to college. During my senior year I had a job working for my grandfather as a farmhand. Well more or less a farm manager, he would give me instructions on what to do to the farm without him being there, most commonly feeding the cows. It was early November, and at this moment in time baseball practice started after school and it would last from 3.25 to 5.30 and by that time the sun was almost down when I arrived at work and started getting ready. One day I had gotten dressed, filled up the buckets, and fed the first farm when I realized I didn't have a key to the other farm. Frustrated, I was forced to pick up two buckets at a time and walk them from the fence to the feed troughs, a good 40-yard walk. While walking I was trying to keep myself upbeat, and just started to whistle, no real pattern or tune but something that I came up with. And when I came back and put the last buckets in the bed of the truck, I heard something from my neighboring property, it was whistling. Strangely, I thought, no one lives anywhere near that property, and it sounded very close, I rationalized it as a mocking bird or something and went on with life. The next couple days, I didn't whistle, but the whistling continued, and slowly over those few days it got clearer and clearer until it just sounded like regular whistling, and eventually it got louder. When I had first heard it, it was very faint, 
I almost missed it over the crunching of me walking to my truck. The last few days in those few I kinda became accustomed to the whistling and kinda expected it. And when one day it didn't come, I was a little disappointed. This time I had brought the key, and I walked up to the gate and started fiddling with my keys when I dropped them into the grass, I said damn it when I dropped them. I squatted down and started to search for them when I heard a very faint sound coming from the other property. A low groan, gurgle, and it was getting louder, at this point I wasn't scared but more curious as to what was going on over there. I left my truck parked across from the property and walked a few feet down the road and hopped the fence to the property. I heard the sounds. The land in there goes straight uphill and is heavily wooded all throughout and the further you go up, the more and more dense it gets. Looking back now I made a few big mistakes that could have gotten me hurt. As I walked up the hill I would occasionally hear the gurgle. It was far up the hill so still as faint as it was before. As I walked a bad smell started to hit my nose, a weird mixture of garbage and wet dog or something. I heard something as I was about to crest the hill, damn it. A very dry, low and quiet distorted damn it came from a couple yards in front of me. It sounded like a 60-year-old smoker said damn it really slowly, and I automatically thought someone was on our property. Somewhat angry and paranoid now, I started to move slower. I didn't want this guy to hear me before I could see them. I kept going, and I stopped and listened when I heard another sound, da da it, d-damn it. This guy was slowly saying damn it normally, not long and drawn out in that eerie way as if he didn't know English. I sat down, on this log kinda listening, trying to figure what I should do about this person. He kept saying damn it over and over and I noticed that his tone was getting higher and his inflection was changing, and it hit me, this guy was perfectly mimicking me. My tone, inflection, literally everything, he even mimicked my frustration when I said it. Pissed and kinda scared now I got up and started to crest the hill. I flicked on my flashlight on my phone, hey, this is private property, I was cut off mid-sentence. As I came over the hill the light barely illuminated a naked figure squatting just a couple yards in front of me. His eyes were illuminated by the faint glow of my flashlight. I automatically felt that something was wrong. This wasn't a regular person. His neck was longer than normal and when I came up the hill he winched his neck and snapped his head to look at me without moving. His eyes were too big and his head was large and slender. He was squatted down in a ballerina-type squat, I looked at his body. He was very skinny, his ribs were showing through his skin. There was a short silence and like a robot, the man turned in the leaves and slowly stood with his hands next to his side. I was debating on it if this was even a person. It was far too tall to be a person. Damn it, it said in my voice. I turned and I sprinted down the hill. It didn't feel like I was running, but more that my legs were just going through the motions. I didn't look back before I got to the fence and when I hopped it I got in my truck and sped away. Sadly, I still work at that farm, but I've never told anyone this story, not even my grandfather. I've only heard the whistling a few more times since then. I'm not really a believer in the paranormal and I really try to find explanations for weird shit, and I believe that this was just a weird person, 
but I really don't know. Sorry for the wall of text, but I thought X would enjoy a personal experience. Hello everyone. My name is Sam and some weird ass shit has been happening to me. First, let me give some backstory. In 8th grade, my friends and I dug a huge 6 foot deep pit that we called the trench in a park across from my house. The park is mostly just woods and unkept plant growth. The property used to belong to a millionaire who lived in my city and it used to be a really nice open park with paths and pine trees and shit but she passed away in the 50s or something and her family sold the land to the city and the city has been too lazy to maintain what it used to be. So now there's a big wooded area in the middle of the neighborhood. Anyway, we dug this pit out of boredom and it's been there for several years. We'd usually check up on it to see if it's still there and keep the hobos from sleeping in it. It was last year that we started to notice some weird shit surrounding the trench. One time we were just hanging out at my house and at around 3 a.m. we went outside and ran to the trench just to check it out. We got there and heard rustling in the bushes. When we turned around to go back home, we all had this strange feeling that we were being watched. Now, we didn't think much of this because there's a ton of hobos in that park but then things just got weirder. Deeper in the park, the trees and plants get denser and the hard ground turns into mush because there's a little bay right outside the trees. And my friends and I had been back there before but we show up and there's a huge opening in the trees and the ground is normal like the ground near the edge of the woods by my house. Almost like something just came in, destroyed the trees, pounded down the ground and left. And there used to be two old wells in that same place and they're both gone. So that was weird, but like okay. There could just be some construction going on maybe. And I kid you not, after a year and half of no one doing anything with that land, not a single plant has grown in the opening. And you might be thinking, how does this tie back to the trench? The same thing is happening where we dug the trench. There was no plants growing there. So that's all the backstory on all the supernatural shit that's been surrounding this trench and this park in general. <coughs> but here's the main part of the story. Last Friday some friends and I were sitting on my front porch having a drink and chatting while a radio was playing on a table next to me. You know those severe thunderstorm warning alarms that sound like this? Well the radio show we were listening to suddenly shifted to that warning telling us that there was a severe thunderstorm in our area, even though it was perfectly clear outside. We thought that was the freakiest thing ever until we saw a fucking spotlight coming from the park across from my house. It was moving all over the place as if someone was using it. This is also freaky because it's almost midnight and no one is usually out in the park with a spotlight. Not only that, but after we turned off the radio, we could feel vibrations in the ground, as if there was an earthquake or something. 
One of my friends isn't scared of anything, so he jumps off the porch and runs straight into the woods towards the spotlight. We all follow. The further we get into the park, the more we start to realize that the spotlight is coming from the trench area. Soon before we arrive, the spotlight turns off, and it's pitch black. None of us grabbed our phones and we didn't have a flashlight so we're just kind of standing there in the darkness. We found our way to the trench after our eyes adjusted to the darkness and saw that all the trees around the trench had been removed, and the trench was filled in. And you have to take into the consideration that the trench was at least six to seven feet deep. It had been there for four plus years and all the dirt that had been taken out of the ground had been packed into the ground so there's no way someone could have filled it in that fast. So what the actual fuck? What the fuck is with the radio? What the fuck is with the spotlight? What the fuck is with the trench filling in? And what the fuck is with the forest randomly disappearing and plants not growing? Is this park cursed? The picture included as a view of the park from my front lawn. I have no pictures or evidence, but I can provide a location. I was just reminded of this event when I reconnected with the friend of mine this happened with. Strap in for a short story that happened to me and my buddy a few years back. I used to work at a movie theater back in my early 20s and pretty much everyone there played airsoft. It was something even the managers got in on and when you were newly hired you would typically be invited to a game. I had been working there for a while and attended all the games because it was fun as hell and we always had great locations to play in. We had a new guy come in named Ryan and he was already a big time player and informed us we could use his uncle's property. It turned out to be an awesome location because there had been a large two-story house built on the land that was mostly in ruins but still good to use and showed us pictures of it. Our manager thought it over and decided we would use the property for our next event despite knowing next to nothing about it. Everyone gets the address and we show up. First thing I notice it's not actually, technically on the map. I used Verizon Navigator and it led me to a dirt road with an open fence and the area was heavily wooded. My buddy Corey and I had stayed up all night just because we were so hyped about the event and thought maybe our nav was wrong. We then saw two more cars go down the road so we're like, fuck it, let's follow. The road is covered in mud, giant fucking reeds and weeds on both sides of us and the road clearly hasn't been used in forever. We end up pulling to a clearing where the rest of the guys are, there's like 30 to 40 of us. We get out, unload and dress up in all our tactical gear which is pretty heavy when you wear it long enough. Did I mention Texas? It was mid-summer and the heat was easily around 100 degrees if not more. Turns out the house was fucking awesome. It had rotted away in a lot of areas and the wasps were really obnoxious but otherwise a really fun place to play. No, nothing weird happened and we ended up taking a break around 12. It was blazing hot and I was dying of thirst but thankfully we brought an assload of water. Break lasted about a 30 minutes before we were back at it again. This time, I was outside the house, attacking the group inside. 
Corey wanted to take the long way around to this hill that would give us an advantage and better angle to shoot through the giant windows from above. Well, the trail we thought we were following turned out to be a creek bed I guess that lead nowhere. I'm not sure how you get lost in the woods but we just kept going thinking we were heading back to the clearing but that didn't happen either. Eventually we couldn't hear anyone or see anyone and we've got all this heavy ass gear on but we just thought it was funny and laughed at our own autism. Eventually though we realized we might be in a lot of trouble because the area was unfamiliar and we really had no clue where we were. Hours passed. I was so thirsty I actually drank from a very small water source I found flowing where the creek had mostly dried up. I heard you shouldn't drink still water so I guess it turned out okay, didn't get sick or anything. Anyways, so hours passed and all we could see was trees and carrying all that gear in the heat was destroying us. I knew there had to be a main road or any kind of neighborhood or something nearby and yeah. Eventually our luck changed when we found a full-on neighborhood. I ran to the first house I saw, turned on their water hose and started drinking from it, same with Corey. It was almost instantly on because there were exactly zero cars despite the neighborhood being very plain looking. I forgot to mention, we left our phones in the car because we didn't want them to break or something stupid when playing. So no cars, no people that I could see and even worse the neighborhood was shaped like an oval with one road going around in a full circle about the entire neighborhood. You could even see the outline of it because the tree line never broke for a road to even exist. We walked the length of the neighborhood and went a full lap around it. About 40 or so houses were there and eventually we knocked on some random person's door. Some elderly woman answered, again, looked normal and we asked to use her phone. She actually told us she didn't have a phone. Okay, thank you. We moved to the next house but she actually came outside and started watching us with this big weird smile. We knocked on the next door and it was another old lady and her husband. They didn't have a phone either. Both of them came outside and smiled at us and at that point Corey who was really freaked out said we should leave. It was getting dark and I really didn't want to be in this creepy fucking Amish hell at night. It was only then that I noticed there were no power lines or poles for electricity. That is when I knew something was really fucked up about this place. We went to the next lane, not followed and knocked on another door and sure enough it was another elderly couple and they obviously didn't have a phone either and they started watching us too. Keep in mind these houses looked modern, not like barns or anything. We didn't want to be watched so we went to the next block over the last block near the tree line. Please continue dude, I'm into it. I won't ignore trips but there isn't much left to the story. Me and Corey basically skirted the wood line for the next hour trying to avoid being seen by the people who lived there because it felt like they were being passive aggressive. There was nothing remarkably paranormal about what was happening but out of nowhere this dude comes from the woods and he's not exactly old about late 30s maybe. He isn't smiling either so we consider that a good sign. Corey did most of the talking when we were trying to get information but no one really seemed to care about our questions. They just said they didn't have a phone and watched us until we went out of their line of sight. 
This guy, however, was an asshole. He kept asking where we had come from and who else was there. It was just Corey and I but he made us follow him around the entire neighborhood like he was making sure no one else was there. I wanted to know where we were and what the fuck was going on in this prehistoric place but he didn't really answer, just muttered to himself. When we finished going around the place he asked us how many houses we went to and who all saw us. We told him the truth and asked again what the place was. He said it was a, and I quote, designation zone for people with severe schizophrenia and that the houses had been built to sync with whatever delusion they were having. When questioned about power he said it was a private project and that he was contractually unable to say much else. He also stated that we should mind our own business and not go around telling people about the place and that the people were very sick. I believe I actually found the location on Google Maps at one point in time, but it was just an empty lot where nothing was on it but an oval clearing with dirt. He didn't have a phone either for the record, but lead us to a tree marked with a camouflage band of masking tape and told us to follow the trees with tape. Corey and I followed them and ended up on a road that actually had cars where we could flag down help. We had to walk an additional two hours and ended up using a flashlight Corey had brought to keep in line with the tape. Even after we got to the main road there were practically no cars and had to wait a long time before one showed up. It was dark by then. I never went back and never attempted to find the place again. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. If you enjoyed tonight's story, then please subscribe to the channel as more green texts will appear daily. A new broadcast will appear when the clock strikes midnight central time. I posted here last week. Bear with me because a lot of this is only half remembered. Here's a family tale I posted here last week. Bear with me because a lot of this is only half remembered and all the information second, if not third hand. Shortly before I was born, my mom and dad were involved in some sort of crazy hunt for John Lafitte's treasure along the Gulf Coast of Texas. Apparently, my dad got pulled into it by several people he worked with. They pooled their money and basically financed about a three weeks time to chase some lead that one of the other guys had. So, big surprise, it didn't pan out like they hoped. The map that the leader of the whole shebang, Allen, had was nowhere near accurate and what landmarks it had no longer matched up to anything they were seeing, if it was even authentic at all. I remember my dad telling me that early on, he thought it was all just an excuse to go on a road trip to the beach and get shit-faced. Well, it turned out that, even if no one else was, Alan was serious. I don't know whose idea it was, but somebody got the bright idea to contact, in my dad's words, a medium. Who put them in touch with this old woman was the guy who owned the boats they chartered. Whoever that guy was, he obviously thought this old woman was the real deal, and it was pretty clear that she thought so too, because she wouldn't tell them shit until they agreed to give her a full cut of whatever they found. Once Alan agreed to that, she told the rest of the crew and all the rest of the come-alongs, wives, girlfriends, children. All told, I think it was about 25 to 30 people, to go back to the hotel and Alan would be along shortly. 
Apparently, the old woman didn't allow children, pregnant women, or pets to be around when she did her thing. Dad said Alan showed up at the hotel about three hours later, looking like he'd seen the devil himself, just went to his room without a word to anyone. When Dad went to ask him if he was okay, Alan told him that he knew where they were going, then added that once the old woman got to chanting, it sounded like every dog in the county set to howling. The next morning, Alan got everyone together at breakfast and told them that the place they were looking for was about another 30 miles down the coast, and that he'd been told to pick six men to come with him and everyone else was to stay behind. My dad was one of the seven that went on that dig. So, the seven of them set out in two vehicles, a truck with whatever half-assed digging tools they'd thrown together and a station wagon. Alan made a sort of surprise detour into a little town they passed along the way to stop at a Christian bookstore. When they stopped, the other guys were justifiably confused about what they were doing and he told them that the old woman had told him that every man who came along needed some sort of spiritual protection, like a Bible, a crucifix, whatever, just something they had faith in, and that they were to keep them on their persons at all times. Well, these were all guys from the deep south, so Bibles and crosses seemed a pretty safe bet. After Alan made sure that everybody had some form of protection, they set off again. When asked if they should be watching for landmarks, Alan just told them that when they got close, they'd all know. So off they drove, the day rainy and overcast with a big storm brewing out in the gulf. It was a grove of glowing trees that they saw. I don't know who was the first to spot them, but once Alan saw them, he was convinced, a little grove of trees sitting back maybe half a mile from the beach, glowing with foxfire. They got as close as they could in the station wagon, then prepared to transfer everything, men and gear, over to the truck. As they came to a stop in the car, they all became aware of a sound coming from the cargo area in the back. When they opened the back, they discovered the source of the sound to be a die-cast toy motorcycle scooting around on the top of a TV tray. The toy had no motor. Apparently, the two or three guys who saw that kept it to themselves. I'd love to be able to tell you what specific thing told them where to dig. Dad seemed to think it was nothing that Alan just knew somehow. Whatever it was, they started to dig. And dig. And dig. Dad said that Alan was sort of manic about the whole thing. Not excited, exactly, more like he was nervous and impatient. Once Alan came clean, his mood made a lot more sense. They dug in shifts through the afternoon and as the light started to fail, Alan surprised them all by telling them that they'd be staying through the night. Well, all the guys had heard the weather reports on the radio that Hurricane Celia was supposed to be making landfall somewhere in the Corpus Christi area, pretty much exactly where they were, and they all told him he was crazy if he expected them to stay out there. That was when Alan came clean with the rest of what he'd been told. The old woman had told him that the reason that Lafitte's treasure had never been found was because it moved, that Lafitte had had someone put a curse on it, or he'd done it himself, I can't remember, that any man who found its location had from one sunrise to the next to dig it up. 
My dad and two other guys told him that for no amount of money were they trying to weather a hurricane in a tent they picked up at Kmart and that they were getting out of there. Alan and the other three begrudgingly let them leave. One guy volunteered to drive them back to the hotel in the station wagon. The other three stayed right there and continued to dig their asses off. I should probably pause at this point to tell you a little something about the hole and the men digging it. When we think of buried pirate treasure, we tend to think of an oak chest buried four or five feet deep in the sand somewhere. That's exactly not the sort of hole these men were digging at Alan's instruction. No, this was more an impromptu mineshaft into the side of a small rise. These guys all worked in the mining industry and had either grown up listening to their father's stories about how they used to make their tunnels in the old days or else had dug a few themselves. One of the men who stayed behind definitely had. He was the oldest of the crew, somewhere in his 50s among this crew of 20-somethings, and he'd graduated from working in the mines to a desk job. He'd listened to Alan's description of what they needed to do and sent the man he deemed most worthless after a list of supplies. As they dug, this old man saw signs that he was sure meant there had been a shaft filled in there before. My father saw some of this evidence, shards of old, rotted timber, primitive-looking spikes rusted down to almost nothing. These finds really fueled their hopes that they were chasing more than foxfire and a crazy old woman's word, so the four that remained dug just as fast as the old man would allow them to. By that afternoon, they'd sunk a shaft about two feet high, three feet wide, and about nine feet deep into the hillside, all the time thinking that next strike of the pick would meet with that satisfying thunk of metal biting into wood. It was around that time that Hurricane Celia came ashore. The winds and the rain had been getting steadily worse throughout the day. My father and the rest of the men who opted out of insanity had made it back to the hotel around two that afternoon. They tried to convince the owner of the station wagon to stay, but he was hearing none of it, and it's through him that my father heard most of the rest of this story. The rain was coming down in solid sheets by then and had he been on the road in anything other than a cool two tons of rolling iron, he'd have probably not made it back, but make it back he did. He'd no more than pulled up than two of the remaining three men at the dig site piled into the car and told him to get them the hell out of there. In the almost two hours he'd been gone, the old man and worthless, I think, had decided against trying to stick things out. According to them, Alan came unglued. He told them that they could all go to hell as far as he was concerned and that if nobody cared about the money, he'd stay and keep it all for himself. Wagon Man decided he'd make an attempt of his own to reason with Alan, but after Alan brandished a shovel at him and told him to get his chicken shit ass off his dig, that was all it took to decide Wagon Man that the other two had the right idea, so they left to find whatever shelter they could. It was an old couple, the owners of the property for all I know, who took them in for the night. As you'd probably guess, they were hesitant to tell the old folks what they were up to. It was the old miner who finally came clean. The old couple told them that they were damned fools to be off chasing after treasure in a hurricane, and other than the terrible storm, the night passed without incident. No one will ever know for sure what happened to Alan that night.
The rest of this comes from wagon man and old miner as related to me by my father. At first light, wagon man and old miner set back out in the station wagon to find Alan, picking their way through the debris as best they could. When they arrived at the dig, they knew it was going to be bad, trees down all over the place. They parked the wagon and made their way up through the trees on foot. As they reached the camp, the first thing they saw was the pickup crushed beneath a tree. They hurtled downed trees and ran to it, fearful of what they'd find inside. It was empty. None of the tents were anywhere to be seen. It was then that they turned their attention to the shaft. Old miner yanked the truck's glove box open, pulled out a flashlight, and told wagon man to wait by the truck. He knelt down before the hole and shined the light up inside. After a moment, he called out to Alan twice before reaching inside and beginning to tug. Come help me get him out, he said. As wagon man approached, he saw something laying in the dirt that the other man had missed, a glint of gold, Alan's crucifix and the broken necklace on which it had hung. What they pulled out of that hole was barely recognizable as their friend. His legs, back, and face had all been horribly clawed, as if something had forced its way up between his back and the low ceiling of the tunnel. Despite the lacerations to his face, his eyes were intact and bulging with terror and pain. Old Miner told the younger man to go fetch the authorities and break the news to the rest of the crew, and under no circumstances was he to let Alan's girlfriend come out and see him like this. According to my dad, Old Miner was a real class act, really took charge and acted as a sort of shield for the rest of the young treasure hunters. After the police were done questioning him, they pretty much gave everyone else involved only the briefest of hassles before letting them get on the road back home. My dad sent my mother on back with the rest and chose to stay behind with the old man till some of Alan's family could arrive to claim the body. The official cause of death was listed as shock brought on by animal attack, as his injuries, though horrible, weren't inflicted in areas that would have proven fatal. The old man, though tight-lipped about what he thought, seemed to have other ideas. On the trip home, he asked my father if Alan had ever told him why they needed their protection out at the dig site, to which my father replied that he had not. Alan had told the ones that stayed with him longest, it seems, and this is what that old man passed on to my father. That old witch told him we should keep our gods close, else old John gone come show you all the horrors of hell. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. If you enjoyed tonight's story, then please subscribe to the channel as more green texts will appear daily. A new broadcast will appear when the clock strikes. Midnight Central Time.
train comes a rolling clickety clack. Nobody knows where that old train goes. 